who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested, and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android, or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Wander with us into a world of magic. Do you lack magic? Where old stories take on a new life and the world is teeming with possibilities. Well, for the last time, we're not kissing, Fritz. Join Jenny and Madeline in this fantastical audio drama as they journey into the stories you grew up with. Okay, Gown, let's do this. And reinvent fairy tales with a feminist twist. Ready for your next adventure? Then we'll see you soon in the forest of feminist fairy tales. Why do you look like that? Like what? Like that. Scared. Because you're acting crazy, Uncle Jim. Because I want to go home. No, 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 I told you you don't have to be afraid when you're with me. Hey, guys. Welcome to another episode of Mother May I Sleep With Podcast. I'm Molly McAleer. Today's episode is Kidnapped, the Hannah Anderson story. Our guest is Abby Baldwin. She hosts a podcast with her roommate and dear friend. It's called Dearly Departed. I've done it twice now. We did, um, it's all about basically one season wonder shows. We've done NYC Prep and then most recently Real Housewives of DC, which is honestly one of my favorite one season wonders of all time. Just a solid episode of television or series of television. You guys check that episode out, Dearly Departed. Great podcast. Abby, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. I'm stoked to be here. Um, And so are your neighbors, apparently. Just to address the elephant in the room, if you guys can hear it, Abby's neighbors are having some... uh, some bass going on. They're playing music for the first time in their life. They do have children that run around. So I don't know if this is actually preferable to the stomping that I usually hear um, when they're running up and down the hallways in like giant boots is all I can imagine. But, At least um, it's not working out, you know? Yeah. But okay. So wait, where do you live? Are you in Brooklyn? <laughs> I'm in LA. I'm in um, Filipino town. Oh, no way. Why did I think you were Brooklyn? Because I guess maybe your vibes. Well, thank you. I appreciate it. I am from the East Coast. I'm from Boston, but I've been in LA now for about a year and a half. Wait, have we've talked? Have we talked about this? Being from Massachusetts? Yeah, we have. Yeah. Where are you from in Mass again? Um, I moved around a lot growing up. So I'm originally from the North Shore, born in Salem. Right, right, right. And then I went to high school on Cape Cod, and then I went to college in Boston. What was high school in Cape Cod like? Um, you know, it was unpleasant for me. I'm not going to lie. Um, 
I don't come from like a whole lot of money. And the town that I grew up in is definitely like very much split. There's very wealthy people and then very working class people. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of like Range Rovers, Mercedes, like in the student parking lot, that kind of vibe. Um, A lot of Lily Pulitzer, a lot of Vineyard Vines. But I, I made it and it was fine. You know, it's so interesting. I think like the Massachusetts school system is very like it's town by town. It really varies. Like you can live in a town next to another town that has like the worst school and you guys have the best school. It's like very much you don't know what's going on the the town over. Yeah, I I do I am grateful because the actual school that I went to, like it was a public high school. It had it was a very excellent school. I definitely feel like I had a great education there so i definitely feel lucky um but i try not to think too much about the actual events of high school it was not the happiest time in my life i understand and that's relatable so wait so what's the i'm gonna keep bringing you back there sorry um what was like the what's the vibe of a year-round cape person i actually don't hate the year-round cape lifestyle because It's really, it's very, very busy in the summer. I was in Falmouth. So we have, we have, of course, two different ferries to the vineyard. So it's very tourist. It's very attractive to tourists in the summer, but in the winter, it's so quiet. And the only people that live there year round are like either like blue collar working class or like doctors and scientists. And that's why you have that kind of like wealth division, but it's very very chill in the winter. I mean, it's boring, but I also think it's kind of a good place to grow up. Um, You do have like the huge heroin crisis to contend with. That's definitely a factor. Yeah. But in general, it's very boring in the winter and very, very busy in the summer and like tons of traffic. And I was a waitress for like most of high school. I was working at a restaurant that was like on the water seafood. So a lot of tourists, a lot of like rude people from all over. Um, Dude, I bet you were earning though. Oh, I have worked in restaurants my whole life. I have never made as much money as I made as an 18 year old on Cape Cod. I resent it to this day because it it set me up to expect so much more. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. No, like it's boom in there. I actually am kind of jealous that you had that experience if I'm being perfectly honest with you. Um, Okay. Well, I miss fish. I will tell you that I've been thinking about that a lot lately kind of would love to go back and be a little bit cold and have yeah. some fried clams or something. But we're here today to talk about the Hannah Anderson story. As I said at the top, I am brand new to this case. I looked it up on Reddit. I sent you yesterday the infamous Ask FM session she did. I did read every word. It was really actually quite fascinating. It was. And, you know, this is sort of a a genre of kidnappings, right? Like a young girl goes off with an older man and it seems like it's possibly like a clandestine affair, right? Mm -hmm. Like she, you know, uh, a lot of we've seen this before, like that girl who ran away to Mexico with her teacher, for example. But I don't think that this case is that. And to me... It's so clear that this was just a very early case in terms of the public trying to understand how teens grieve and express themselves now, because all of this like suspicion that came up around her is really involving her social media 
and yeah. some questionable things that let's be real. None of this stuff is stuff that she's able to consent to. Even if at one point she did, you know, sort of suggest or make it seem like her life would be better if she didn't have to deal with her mom and she just had the freedom that she had with her uncle Jim, that still doesn't mean that she asked for what happened. But there's definitely some people out there that think, you know, especially at the time, there wasn't even that much stuff on Reddit. Um, but for the most part, the stuff on Reddit was like, you know, unpopular opinion. I think she totally had a part in this. And then there'd be people coming in being like classic sociopath, like, you know, all this stuff. And I didn't see that from her. I even watched the real version of the Today Show interview that sort of acts as like a a common thread throughout this movie. It pulls us in and out of certain scenes and helps tell the story. And I just didn't, I didn't see in her what other people were saying they saw and that she might've been devious or, you know, wanted to run away with this family friend because they were romantically involved. And I think maybe seven years ago, the conversation about consent and minors wasn't as active. So, you know, you're, you're younger. Like, I think that like you probably are around this girl's age, maybe. I am 23. Yeah, you know what? I looked her up and I think we were born in the same year. Yeah. So, like, so, you know, yeah. I mean, imagine, like, if you were kidnapped, right? And, like, also not just kidnapped, but, like, made famous. And I think that's part of part of this is that also Amber Alerts were kind of new at the time. So, every, like, you know, your case, if it's as interesting as hers were like was like all of the different elements involved, like her mom dead, her brother dead, potentially kidnapped by a family friend, father out of town, like Amber alert, like all of that is stuff that's public bait. Like that's what the public loves in a case that they follow. Right. So she comes out of this and she's, you know, certainly not Elizabeth smart, but she's fairly fairly relevant and this is like some new fame for her do you not feel like what she did was completely normal based off of like 2013's like standards oh well that was what amused me about this movie so much is that everybody is freaking out about her doing a little ask fm q a and posting like a picture with her brother's sports team on instagram i know for a fact that if this had happened to me and i, I don't know you know what it's like to go through this kind of trauma but if I had come out of this and people were obsessed with me online, I would have capitalized on it in an even more, like, to a more inappropriate degree than her. Mm-hmm. As a girl of that age, um, I would have been all over social media trying to get attention. Like, that just would have been where I was at. And For she sure. she was not doing that. She no. was just genuinely trying to get the story straight, trying to get people to not think that she was a sociopath. And it just got way out of hand. They use a cool thing in this movie, too, that I'll hit on when we get to it. But, you know, overall, this movie is pretty straightforward and that there wasn't, you know, a lot of the kooky stuff we look for in Lifetime movies where we're looking for the bad wardrobe or the bad hair or the bad, like, line reads or questionable dialogue. A lot of that stuff doesn't really come up here because the movie's pretty straightforward and well-made in that sense. It's more, um, some of the more quirky moments are really just like the, honestly, the detectives, I, f- I felt there was a lot of like rich stuff in there. But for the most part, this movie's straightforward. So we're going to, you know, there's not too much to hammer on here. We're going to, and I say that probably as a curse to myself, because now it's going to be 
the longest episode we've ever done. And I apologize. <laughs> but we're going to just move through this uh, as quickly as possible and have a fun, maybe some tangents or whatever. But we see this like overhead shot of the trees when we open up. And it is like the most tree-ish forest. Were you not overwhelmed by the amount of trees? I thought it was so gorgeous. And immediately I was like, whoa, lifetime. Like, is this a budget moment? Like, are you flexing this sort of like on location, beautiful forest situation? But I've never been to, is it Idaho? It's Idaho. Yeah. Drone footage looks rich. That's the thing about it. It's like the cheapest way to make something look expensive. I know that every 16 year old boy on YouTube like has a drone, but it, it will still impress me to this day. I mean, I'm so dumb too. like, especially like until like very recently, I sort of just assumed someone would like fly by those places in a helicopter with like a really strong camera. <laughs> I no, was I, so, like naive about how stuff like that was filmed. No, that's the effect that I get when I see a shot like that. I'm like, oh my God, holy shit, <laughs> millions of dollars. Like that's oh, like, yeah, immediately like, where my mind goes. Expensive thing. Like it has to be $20 million. Exactly. So we see Hannah and Jim are in the woods. Jim DiMaggio is this guy's name. And he is, let's try and like find a way to describe him. He definitely looks like an alcoholic. He is like more trim than what you would immediately think, right? That's the way he's portrayed in this movie. He doesn't, he's not fit in any way, but he's not as big as you might think he might be in terms of like a big pot belly or something like just like sort of that alcoholic look. Right. He has, you know, a beard. He looks tired. He looks like the world has seen him. He's not ruddied yet, but he's getting there. They did in sort of like lifetime fashion cast just like a, you know, a, a slightly more attractive version than the actual man. It's um, it's Scott Peterson, right? Or Patterson. Scott Peterson is the guy who killed his wife on on Christmas Eve, allegedly. Scott Patterson is the name of the actor. Scott Patterson is the actor. Okay. He's from Gilmore Girls, so I'm like super familiar with him. Okay. Okay. But I did did respect the way they sort of like grizzlied him up for this role. So he played Luke on Gilmore Girls, which I have not really like gotten into Gilmore Girls because it uh, triggers me. But like there's something about... I, I know Luke's like the big one, right? Is that who Lorelai goes for? Yeah, he's like a the big like multi-season love interest for her. And Hannah's played by Jessica Amley, who has a fucking wild IMDb photo. Like, no way. Beast in it. It's fucking not- She doesn't look at all like she does in this movie. She looks just like the real girl in the movie. She does. She looks a lot like her. And by the way, that real girl, I sent Hannah Anderson's interview to my friend Liz today, Liz Bentley. And I was like, do you know that you kind of look like her? And I think you might want to like put some blonde highlights on. Like, I think that would be like a really good look for you. Uh, She looks a lot like her. And this actress is like, you know, I have to say she's, you know, stunning. She does a really good job in this. You might know this actress from um heartland she was a series regular on that a show called jeremiah she's been working since 2001 i yeah she had some work in 2019 she did a show called greenhouse academy um she does look unbelievably different on imdb i am worried about what i'm seeing on imdb it does i mean it does look like a different girl 
But I, it's just like a little more of a glam moment for her. It's yeah, maybe- and then if you go to her second photo, like she looks like a like a freaking moodle. <laughs> you know, she totally has that look going. I mean, I will say in all uh, sincerity, this is the type of diversity you need to have as like a blonde actress is you need to be able to pull off all these looks. Different, different haircuts, you know, different amounts of curly. Yeah, I had a friend whose girlfriend, I like literally did not recognize their entire relationship. Like I would run into her all the time and she would be like, it's me, Jordan's girlfriend. And I would be like, wait, what? And I told her, I was like, this is why you should be a very, very successful actress because you never look the same to me. Like ever. Like I I feel like that's like a a needed quality in an inspiring actress is that you change your hair color and you're a new person. That's what Rachel McAdams especially really had going for her at the beginning. You know what? I do have to agree. And now I'm thinking like, I'm, I'm not an actress. I don't have any ambitions to be an actress, but I do think I have that effect. And maybe this is just me making excuses for the fact that I always run into people and they don't recognize me. But I did for most of my like, my my short adult life so far, I do change my hair fairly regularly and people really have a hard time with that. Like they have a super hard time realizing that I am in fact the same person. You know, it's oddly a desired character, like character trait in an actress to be sort of like invisible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you don't really know who they are unless, you know, because otherwise maybe you wind up being typecast or remembered for your biggest role. But when you can switch it up that much, it's like, yeah, that's a great quality. So good quality. They're in the woods and Jim is trying to start a fire, but the wood is too wet. And he's like, why do you look so scared? And she's like, I really want to go home. And he's like, listen, we're going to be together. And that can't happen if we're, you know, she's like, if we're going to be together, together, we can't just do it out here alone. We need to get some help because they're now at this point, we'll find out several days without proper food. The fact that she is in her pajamas in in the woods like this, I was feeling freezing on her behalf. Like, I don't know how real Hannah did this in like some flannel PJ pants that looked like, you know, low quality and a t-shirt and like a little top. Like, I don't know how she did it. Well, I did see on her her little Ask FM thread from the real Hannah that she was carrying like his 50 pound backpack the whole time. I know. As well. She was carrying two 50-pound backpacks, which is like a huge issue for me as someone who feels like I should never be inconvenienced in the presence of a man. Like I, whenever I'm like struggling to carry something and there's a guy nearby, I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with you? Like, help me. Like, right. <laughs> so like the fact that this old ass man has her carrying two 50-pound backpacks, which by the way at least one of them is filled with like probably a couple cases of beer because he, for, you know, a lack of all the other things that they have, right. He has beer in every scene. So, um, you know, that kind of made me mad. If I was her, I probably would have brought that up and said like, seriously, like you're having me carry your stash. Yeah. I mean, I hate to say it, but I just kind of got the sense that he was like, incompetent at child abduction like he really did not think this through 
Yeah, so we have to talk about that because, like, especially towards the end, and we'll sort of track that throughout this, especially towards the end, he's acting really far gone. Yeah. Like, he is, like, no one's in the house any longer. Some A new resident has taken over, and they're not, like, predictable. So she tells him that she read in a book that if he shoots three times in the air, it means SOS. And he almost takes it as a threat, it seems. And he shoots once into the air and he calls out into the distance. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, we're going to send you to jail. Oh, um, old Uncle Jim. Oh, yeah. And whenever someone goes like, oh, yeah, and they're like being serious, that's when I know it's on. Yeah, I was wondering if this was like verbatim from the real event because I felt like as like from a script perspective, these were not like the most powerful lines. So I'm thinking that this is probably what the actual man said. Yeah. I mean, (laughs) one would hope, right? There's definitely like, you know, like a lot of these true crime cases, when they make a movie about it, they want to include details that the audience has definitely read if they've been a casual observer or if they are um, someone who's followed it really closely. So like they hammer on this SOS thing a lot. And that's because it's one of the things from the Ask FM. It gets brought up in the interview. The SOS thing is a it's I almost hear about it too much for something that seems insignificant in the big picture of things. It's the SOS thing, the Ask FM and the Starbucks. But that said, you know, when I watch like the Chris Watts movie, I'm so happy when they slam dunk a piece of information that to me as someone who's been following that case, it means a lot. It's always stuck out to me. So while I appreciate it, it is like they're almost too bare on details in this story, almost the way that with the Michelle Carter movie with Bella Thorne, which I have to do. And I I wonder if that would be good for me and your co-host to do together. I definitely could see him eating up a Bella Thorne moment for sure. I need someone that's going to appreciate that aspect. Oh yeah. No, that is a good idea for him. Yeah, it is totally. Yeah. He's going to be stoked. Yeah. We'll pin that. So he says, like, no matter what, he and this girl are going to get out of there and they're going to make a life together. So he's very much in the path of, like, this is his wife, basically. So he shoots up into the air several more times. The FBI strikes and they shoot him. Hannah gets out to the tent to check his body. It almost seems like she's very, like, concerned when she sees him down. And the FBI comes in. They tell her to get down. They offer her a blanket. Then we cut to the hospital where she's sleeping. And her dad is there. Um, And her dad and her have not seen each other in a while. And it feels very much like that. Like she's waking up to a reunion with her dad. And she asks him, you know, where's mom? Where's Ethan? Are they okay? And he has to sadly break the news that they are no longer with us. So then we hear like, you know, just to use a seasonal word, a cornucopia of voices, all these different news anchors from all these different channels, letting the community know that Hannah Anderson, the missing teen, has been found. She's due home on Monday. There was an Amber Alert. It's a national case of a missing teenager whose mother and brother were killed. So we're sort of getting why this is so, like why this is so important, right? Like she has a lot of national attention on her, which probably in her mind tr- 
like, you know, translate the translates the way it does. Like a lot of people are wondering about her and she's really the only one who has the answers. Yeah. So then we see this like sleepy sort of wealthy looking suburb that she supposedly lives in. And I was trying to figure out if Hannah's family was well off because it does seem like they didn't, they would normally play to that. If she was not well off, she wouldn't have lived in that house in the movie. Yeah, I don't know any details on the real situation, but this house is, I thought it was kind of insane. Yeah, it is. They picked a great house for them. And so Hannah's dad is driving her home and he's explaining that a lot of people have been looking for her and they're all going to be excited for her. So she's like, you know, what's up with mom and Ethan? He was only eight. You know, why couldn't it have been me? She feels like she could have saved them, but she didn't even try. And her dad's like, listen, I have the same regrets, but I can't change things if I want to. So we're, we're going to have to like find a way to cope with this. And he says that he's glad he still has her. And Hannah seems to accept this sort of information as a potential emotion, but she's definitely struggling with it. And these are some of the ways that they really like play with us as an audience trying to understand Hannah and sort of, I guess, maybe leaning into the vagueness and why some people had a hard time getting a read on her. They really let the actress let us have like a hard time getting a read on this actress. That's exactly right. And honestly, that I I did find that scene between her and her dad to be the main one where I did kind of like bump on the line deliveries where I was like, is this supposed to feel forced? Like it just had this, I had this feeling that she was not being entirely genuine, which I guess is just them kind of playing into the confusion around Hannah Anderson and all the rumors around her. Yeah, it's a little bit like not to bring up our girl Bella again in the Michelle Carter movie where that case is about the girl, the texting teen in Massachusetts who texts her boyfriend to kill himself. Um, That's that movie. And they, you know, there's a lot of questions about Michelle Carter. Was she, you know, sort of a messed up girl that got wrapped up into a bad thing? Was she a criminal mastermind? And so, you know, they try to, I find, dance around all possibilities on this with Lifetime. And a lot of times the way that shows up is a lead character that you never have a read on the whole movie, which might be, which might be the way to go, you know, that because it, it, like, I guess we are curious about her, but I do find that it seems like the movie's a little bit out of their control when your lead acts like that the whole time. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So she gets home and there's this news crew on her lawn asking questions about how she's doing. It's a real scene when she gets home. It's like not what Amanda Knox or Elizabeth Smart came home to, but like it's definitely a situation. There's this little girl who hands her a teddy bear on the steps and she's, you know, sweet to her. She thanks her. And her dad has like done a good job of sort of sizing up the media at this point and learning how to have sort of a literacy about what's going on here and how to control them. He's a I have to say this dad's boundaries with the media is are excellent. Like throughout this whole movie, it's so impressive the way they play it. Like he's at times very like curt with them and very much like, you know, this is what's happening here tonight and I'm not going to be answering any more questions, but never in a way where he's saying anything to the media that would maybe imply that he's guilty or knows something he shouldn't know. Because right. he's someone that could easily be implicated. This was his best friend that took her. 
Yeah, and I was surprised that they never went with that angle. I guess that was just not something that the media leaned into. I am always like, I'm so stressed out by this media circus stuff. Like, it just seems so terrifying to me that there's this many people, especially hounding like a a minor for information, like right outside her house. And I'm always kind of impressed when the parent doesn't like yell at these people to get off their property. Like, he could have kind of lost it on them and I would have understood. But he does bring it in while still protecting her from the media. So he basically like ushers her into the house and then closes the door behind him so that he can tell the press she's doing well. She's taking it day by day. They're looking toward the future right now. So when he gets inside, you know, this is a great home. I wrote in my notes. It's really like kind of wow. Like it takes you off guard a little bit that they're this overtly wealthy because this isn't just a regular lifetime movie where they rent out some Airbnb. And like have Haley Duff act out scenes in it. This is like they really got a home that's substantial here. And he tells her that people brought stuff by. It's in her room if she wants it. Everything's going to be okay. And Hannah picks up a picture of her mom and her brother on her bedside. And she simply exhales and gives it a hug. When she, It seems like she has the weight of the world on her shoulders. And this is another scene at the very beginning where... You know, she's not crying when she looks at the picture. You could say that maybe she's in shock. But again, the actress is just so playing in the murkiness so much that it's really difficult to tell what's going on here. So then two days later, we see this Hyundai pull up to the house bumping R&B music as the press continues to camp out on the street. Hannah's friend Cassie is pulled in and she whispers from her bedroom looking down on Cassie like, welcome to the Anderson Carnival. So Cassie tells the press, oh, I'm just a friend, a good friend. And she kind of stops the questions there. But Cassie is definitely aware that this is kind of a once in a lifetime moment for them. Yes, I did get that sense. I mean, Cassie is like a little bit messy. I mean, she's a little bit of that influence that gets Hannah online. So I I saw that they were kind of setting her up to sort of, I don't know, be implicated a little bit. And Hannah's like looking bad with the press. So I don't know if Cassie was supposed to represent like an actual best friend. Cause the like I looked and looked and I couldn't find that she had some like notable best friend, but right. I feel like Cassie is there to sort of wink at the audience about maybe some of the more tempting things about the situation that Hannah might have not been able to not indulge in. like. When she, you know, comes in, Cassie says, like, oh, can you believe what the press out there? What are you hiding one direction somewhere in here? And like, that's like her first line to her friend that has just been kidnapped. So it's sort of like Hannah is like the devil. I'm sorry that Cassie is like the devil on Hannah's shoulder a little bit. Yeah. And I was, yeah, I was just so taken by that line because I was like, has she been over before? Like, have they been seeing each other? Because it just doesn't seem like she's welcoming her friend back from an abduction. You're right. And that's almost what makes me think that Cassie might just be fictional. And obviously someone brought her Starbucks to the funeral. So she yeah. did, of course, have friends. But I wonder if like this attitude is being put in place to sort of let the audience know that this is how teenagers think about something like media attention. It's like an opportunity. It's a, it's a moment to be famous. And, you know, you guys notably. So I think everyone from every generation always grows up thinking like, or a lot of people anyway, grow up thinking like, God, what if I moved to Hollywood? What if I was a star, blah, blah, blah. But I feel like, you know, fame through 
a variety of paths is more possible to mm-hmm. your generation than previous generations, right? Like you can be someone that had something terrible happen to them and turn it around into like an amazing life story. You can be Monica Lewinsky. You can be a YouTuber. You can be, you know, someone that blows up on Twitter and has like a young adult novel. You can be like Tavi. You know what I mean? Like you can yeah. be all of these different people that get thrust into a situation. And so I think also this is a little bit of a commentary on kids, you know, if this happened to a high schooler in 2013, what their perspective on it would be. Yeah, I do think about that a lot because I'm I'm on that like millennial Gen Z cusp. So my generation and then even more like the generations after me were raised, I feel like with all of our media pointing to like being famous is the best thing that you can achieve. Anybody can be famous because we had like the the Hannah Montana, um, the like all of the TV shows that I grew up with were about kids and teens getting famous. Like that was always the narrative. And now the kids after me are growing up with TikTok and with YouTube celebrities. And of course I had Vine celebrities. Vine celebrities for sure. And like, by the way, for there's definitely a lot of Vine celebrities who are truly like, you know, white knuckling it to the next level. But <laughs> there's a lot of people that are significant from Vine and that are doing very well. Like as much as people shit on that app and like for sure there are people who are, you know, still stuck in that place a little bit. There's a lot of success that has come out of that. Oh, it's a great it was a great vehicle for like exceptionally funny people. Yeah. And the funniest ones have like kept going. And now a lot of them are on TikTok. Yeah. They're like fully cultural references. Like it's a shorthand that like, you know, I'm sure Gen Z will raise their kids with those like expressions and jokes in the home the way that I was raised with SNL. Right. Yeah. So true. I want to. Okay. So you mentioned that the the TikTok world, right? And I want to talk about this element of it. So Charlie D'Amelio, queen of TikTok, has been trending for multiple days now. Right. Because of, I don't, something, she was like, I guess there was like a family video where she and her sister were rude to a private chef. And like, some people say it was scripted. Some people say it's like not that big of a deal. But, and regardless, a lot of people are chiming in on it. And- one thread I've noticed is a lot of people saying like she didn't sign up for this. And, you know, this is a girl who got almost 100 million followers in one year. Like, and she's huge. She's been in a, like a Super Bowl commercial. And that she was- She has her own Dunkin' drink. Exactly. Like within months of her blowing up, she was in a fucking Super Bowl commercial. Like that's yeah. insane. And she's, yeah, has all these opportunities. And- you know, I have to say, like, when people say she didn't sign up for this, I almost want to say, like, I think that most people, their wildest dream would be that they create a social media account and they become a multimillionaire, probably set for life overnight and over the course of a year. So in a way, I kind of like have to argue that, you know, you kind of do sign up for it when you start yeah. a social media account. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I don't, I don't super, I don't really follow Charlie, but I have, I, I know like an inappropriate amount about like this current controversy because it's just been unavoidable. And I know she's been sort of feuding with Trisha Paytas. Um, Iconic. As is everyone always. That is almost like the key to fame is having a feud with Trisha Paytas. But um, 
yeah, I don't see her as like a victim of TikTok or a victim of celebrity because I do think this is probably what she wanted. Right. This is like what everyone hopes when I mean, I would say like, you know, when I started blogging, we blogged to no one. Like maybe someone saw your blog. Maybe, you know, I tweeted into the void for like four years before it became cool to tweet jokes on Twitter. Right. Yeah. You just like used to create not thinking that anything like this was possible. But of course, if, you know, a massive follower follower account came your way, like you'd be happy to have it. Right. So it's kind of of difficult to think like, you know, she it's just I I think you guys have a unique situation, really, truly, because the things that can happen when you get on social media are so much more possible than Mm -hmm. they ever were for my generation coming up, you know. So um, Hannah says that she has good days and bad days. Sometimes she feels like she's a prisoner. Cassie tells her that she's everywhere online. And the implication is that Hannah is basically famous from this. And Cassie is loving every minute of it. Let's play 802 to 1004. You mean you don't know? <sighs> you got to see this. Come on. Oh, come on. There can't be that many. You're trending. You weren't kidding. This is like totally insane. Well, everyone wants to know what happened to you. Let's check your inbox. I've been gone for like a week, so of course. Wait, 1,097? You know, just because you can't talk to people outside doesn't mean you can't answer a few questions. Cassie. What? What are you so afraid of? Just a couple. Fine. Okay. Are you glad that Jim was shot or would you rather him be in prison? Um, shot, he got what he deserved. Good one. Okay, let's do one more. Did he tell you he had a crush on you, or is that just a rumor? What should I say? Move over. He said he had a family crush. He had feelings, but he just wanted to protect me. Kind of creepy. Yeah. Ooh, here's a good one. You're hot. Thanks. What's your favorite color? Pink. What's your favorite movie? Mm, Step Brothers. <laughs> What's your favorite music? Drake. What? They say you wrote letters to Jim and spent a lot of time with him. Why'd you run away with the guy? Hannah, no, I, I'm gonna answer this. Okay, it's just some crazy troll. Can I sit, please? He said he would murder me. Does that sound like someone I'd run away with? Okay. So, lots here. You know, just for clocking the bad internet of it all, because y'all know I love to do that. The first thing that they open that's supposed to be a (laughs) website is literally a Word document with, like, blocks of black text and then, like, a a hyperlink. (laughs) I was truly, like, this was really making me laugh because I watched the movie before I read the article that you sent me, so... 
I didn't know what website this was supposed to be. I didn't know it was supposed to be Ask FM. And it does look like a web page from 1994. Yeah. So the Ask FM is like a green background. It truly does look like something you would build on like GeoCities. She's inexplicably typing in all caps. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so Ask FM was, for people who don't know, like just a website that you could go on and people had accounts and you could, like Ariana Grande used to have one. Actually, famously, that was up for a very long time, like way too long for someone so famous. Um, but she has a very big internet footprint, which as a stan, I love. I haven't gone deep into her internet footprint myself, actually, but now I'm kind of thinking I should. She still has a Tumblr that's up. From like when she was a teenager? Yeah. Okay, that's tempting. That's tempting information. Yeah, there's one where I think it's like referred to often. I think I saw it on Lipstick Alley not that long ago where someone was like, I think it was, she has, she has one that I think goes around a lot, a post that goes around a lot about um, her diet. Because I think that was after me being on Tumblr. This was probably right. came out around this time. I, 2013 Tumblr was essentially when I started writing on a show full time and was not tumbling all the time. Like I was doing Hello Giggles and the show. So I just, you know, when I wrote something, it went on Hello Giggles. And like this, this era of Tumblr, I understand from other people was when Tumblr started to get really like you might have trauma from being on Tumblr at this time. Well, this this was in fact my era of Tumblr, so I'm 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 quite familiar, almost too familiar, um, with that. Um, I did recently find I remembered my password to log into my Tumblr from high school, which ultimately wasn't that long ago, but feels like a lifetime ago. Oh, especially at your age, like yeah. yeah, like every year you get away from your teen years, like. It feels like a lifetime, but it actually was in reality like four years ago. So yeah, for sure. The only like celebrity Tumblr drama that I'm really familiar with is with Camila Cabello because she, of course, got exposed for posting all this like really vicious and racist stuff on her Tumblr as a teenager. Mm Mm-hmm. So I know that controversy, yeah. but I, I don't think I've ever looked at any other celebrity tumblers. I think I need to like accept that she's famous. Like, is she's someone that whenever other people bring her up to me, I'm like, but why are we, why would we talk about that? And then I realized like, oh, she's like a really big recording artist. Like I, I need to accept that she's famous when I've accepted so many other people that are for no reason. Like I, Camila Cabello, I have this like blind spot for, which is so weird because I do love some Fifth Harmony. Right. Um, I'm, I'm a pop stan, as we know. So like I, I think though maybe part of my Camilla erasure comes from the fact that the only time I've seen Fifth Harmony live was at Dancing with the Stars. And it was the first performance after Camilla had quit. And everyone was so worried about how the four girls were going to pull off uh, Flex featuring Fetty Wap. And they did it great. So, you know, maybe that's a little bit where it comes from. But I will say that I, I sort of recently realized that they are a much like One Direction, a contrived band they were put together by x factor yes and camilla's bit at the time 
which like almost makes me feel bad. Like she has that sort of like very like twee style that almost like Hello Giggles girls were made fun of where she has like bangs and like she wears cutesy little like mod dresses. And one of her things too was that she had a big ass bow. Like she might've even been on the bow train before Jojo. And like they would sometimes like play into it. Like the bow would be comically large and she just Mm -hmm. always, she had a bow. And then at some point the bow disappeared. But I have to ask you, like, where did the bow go? It's so difficult to find dialogue around this bow. I completely missed Fifth Harmony. Like that went over my head. So when I like discovered who Camila Cabello was, it was already like post dropping out of Fifth Harmony I have since discovered the bow and I'm now understanding why this kind of missed me at the time. Cause this probably just wouldn't have been, she wouldn't have been the figure that was really speaking to me as a teenager. But I do think that she has made probably a good marketing choice moving away from the bow. Oh, I think she had to, but I just, it's like, it drives me nuts. It's like almost a Mandela effect with like a lot of evidence against it. But like, there's no I I've I've looked. I'm like, is there discourse? Is there discourse about the bow out there? Nobody's talking about the bow. No one is That's- talking about it. I can't find a blog where someone's, you know, where like what happened to the bow? Like I definitely think people offline are aware of the bow and talking about the bow. And it just hasn't kind of made its way into the Reddit pages because my understanding of Camilla from her Fifth Harmony days is like, okay, she was the one that was like a little bit cringy. And everyone was kind of a little uncomfortable with her persona. Oh, yeah. With like kind of like the Rachel Berry energy, like giving me like a Glee vibe. Oh, I mean, I watch enough shade compilations on YouTube to tell you that she was not openly liked in that band. Yeah. And I'm sure the bow had to had to play into that. I think she really is in a relationship with Shawn Mendes, though, which is shocking. It's hard to stomach his movies coming out. I'll be watching that. Um, it's hard. It's hard to get behind. They're slowly walking in circles, quarantine pictures from the paparazzi that just kind of like look so staged of them, like walking two inches a minute in flip flops. Yeah. It's It's all very unsettling. It's, it turns your stomach. It really does. And, and the worst part is, is that they might really love each other because I, I was like under the impression that this was some PR bearding possibly relationship. Like that's yeah. how it's always was sort of pitched to us, the bitches that sit at home and gossip. Right. right. And right. so then to come out the other side of this and realize that these freaks might actually love each other is disheartening. And, you know, I struggle in that area. I don't know what to believe. I do think that apparently his movie has a lot to say about just how much he loves Camilla. Like that's apparently going to play a big role in his documentary, which only intrigues me more because it just, that seems so scripted to me. So we'll see like after I watch the movie, if I really am convinced if they've sold this relationship. Well, these celebrity propaganda movies are not to be trusted like it bought us too much goodwill towards Katy perry i think with her documentaries <laughs> same with justin right. Bieber, too much right. goodwill. i mean i'll even go as far to throw my girl taylor under the bus and say a little too much goodwill and it's just without answers i think because i i like i like people that tackle the hard stuff you know right not the medium hard stuff have you but- seen the gaga movie are you a, a five foot two fan you or know four? I I am 
Currently not, but I probably will watch it. So tell me about it. That one is more of like the fly on the wall energy. So it's not, it doesn't feel as much like propaganda, which I would argue just makes it like, it does make it more effective propaganda because it doesn't have the propaganda feel. Mm-hmm. I enjoyed it, but I only watched it one time. It didn't speak to me the same way that like I could eat up a Katy Perry movie or a Taylor Swift movie like again and again. Is that the one where like, let's say it's kind of obvious she's doing cocaine, but then like she's also recording with Mark Ronson. So she doesn't. Yeah. Want to- okay. She looks very tired and she has a lot of back pain. I remember the back pain being like a huge plot point. Which is a thing, by the way. That's a huge thing. Like, I have my sciatic shit going on today. I've got a pinched nerve in my shoulder. And I'll tell you, if, like, someone had a cure for that for me right now, I'd be like, hit me with it. At the expense of my podcast, hit me with the shot right now. Oh, absolutely. So... They, um, you know, also I want to, this is just a little nitpicky thing, but let's just break it down because it's your era, right? Her favorite movie is Step Brothers. Her favorite color is pink and her favorite musician is Drake. I would say that that makes her suspicious potentially to your generation because <laughs> I don't think that you can, like, you can like two of those things, but not all three. I, I do like the Drake girls like there's a specific genre of person i feel like that i grew up with that would be like a drake stan and they're few and far between well you can love drake and you can love the color pink but your favorite movie is not Step Brothers, or you can love drake and Step Brothers, but your favorite color is not pink <laughs> i i would have to agree as someone whose favorite color is pink but i don't really care for drake and i would not consider Step Brothers to be in my top 10 I think your generation reclaimed pink in a way that's not tragic. Thank I will you. Say that. Yeah, I no, appreciate that. Like, if you're my age and you like hardcore fuck with pink, like, it's a little bit of like a comment on what's going on up there, you know? <laughs> I mean, my favorite color really is leopard print. Same. Amazing. I'm looking at a lot of leopard print right now. There's, it, it kind of smothers me. The first person who I ever heard say that their favorite color was leopard print was Madonna. She was <gasps> doing like a little Nick. It was like a in during Nick News, like they would have, um, which was I don't, I don't know if you were alive for Nick News, but like it was a news show on Nickelodeon and they would have celebrities do little like, you know, question answering things. And I remember hers being what's my favorite color. And she said leopard print. And I was like, that's OK. Like, that's allowed to be your favorite color. Me too. I agree with you. I consider leopard print to be like the most triumphant print because it has just like transcended generation. It's transcended era. It it's comes in and, It comes in and out of style, but it just remains timeless. Um, and I, I mean, it really does smother me. Like I have probably arguably an insane sort of red flag amount of leopard print in my life. Same. I'm looking at my leopard print fur at the end of my bed right now. I'm like helping my neighbor. She's like sick right now and I'm helping her out. And I came down last night and I had on my leopard fur and some red lipstick. And she was like, she was like, why are you wearing that? And I was like, oh, because I'm a drag queen. Like, did you not know? Like, this is how I feel most comfortable. I'm sorry. I I have to be smothered in the leopard print with the lip gloss like at all times. That's just what makes me feel at home. I'm in my mid 30s and single like I'm absolutely rocking a statement lip and a fur leopard coat 
just to go down the street. 100%. It's a lifestyle. Get get used to it. So um, they set it up like her friend is the one sort of encouraging her to indulge in this fame. And I again, right. I wrote in my notes, it's a great move. So this is another question. What the fuck is a family crush? <laughs> I... I I truly like this had me like that's just how you know that he is absolutely like busted because yeah. what that not not even like any teenager would think that that was a real thing that makes no sense right it's like it it's the number one thing that she has going for her especially in the very beginning in terms of being like this girl is just like out of her league like she doesn't realize she's with this creepy old man and that she's being told things like she says like, Oh, it's a family crush. Like as if that's shorthand, as if we all know <laughs> what that means. Right. And like, no one knows what that means. So, you know, she answers all these questions and she gets sent a message saying that they think that she killed her mom and Ethan and she and Cassie just sort of freeze at that moment. And that's when Hannah's dad comes in and tells Cassie it's time for her to probably head home for the night. So this question is clearly shaken both of them. And her dad comes in and shuts her laptop. And he's like, you know, you should be offline for a while. These people have no idea what you went through. And Hannah's dad is making some dinner downstairs. And she says that she likes meat, but not red meat. Because red meat, and he's like, but red meat is the Cadillac of meat. And she's like, well, red meat is bad for you. And Cadillacs are for old people. And I actually think that that's a really good way of putting that. Even though I like red meat. It's such a good way to say it. It's like, this is an expired idea, dude. We don't just eat red meat anymore. That's so how my generation, I feel like, has reacted to whole milk. Mm-hmm. Like, apparently it's a red flag to drink whole milk now, which I don't drink whole milk, but I still am like, wait, why is this a problem? Yeah, I mean, I guess like a glass of whole milk is pretty aggressive. I think yeah, like it's weird. Flag. I mean, it's weird. Yeah, I mean, well, also when you think of so being from Mass, you know, a coffee regular at Dunkin' is half and half and yeah. two sugars, which is yeah. so fucking intense. I mean, yes, like when you really think about it, like that is disgusting, but it just tastes so good and it's so like what I was brought up on coffee-wise that it just makes sense to me and I do almond milk now, but Nothing hits quite like a Dunks Iced with half and half. Yeah, it's there's something about it where it's like the perfect beginner coffee where mm-hmm. you can see why people get addicted to this. There's nothing to hate about cream and a shit ton of sugar. Yeah. Um, but you, I definitely scaled it back in life. So he says, haven't you ever heard the expression beef? It does a body good. And he, she's like, Dad, that's milk. And he's like, well, it should be beef. And I kind of like this intergenerational sparring, if I'm being honest. So he's like, what's your course load like for next year? You know, you should take uh, geometry. And she's like, I took that last year. And then she, he brings her this plate of food. And she's like, Mom used to make the fried rice with yolk. So this is where we sort of start to see that the two of them have gotten really out of touch. Um, yeah. He has definitely lived out of town. He's lived in Tennessee, like working on construction for maybe the last year or so. But, you know, these are the things in a kid's life, like something as simple as like, what's my favorite color? What classes am I taking? You know, how do I take my rice? Like these are things yeah. that, to kids, it means whether or not someone truly knows them. Yeah. Um, 
And he feels like it's been so long since they've connected. And she's like, it'll be fine. Just like stop making it, you know, trying to make it feel normal. So the news is on in the kitchen, which I'm going to say to him, if you're going to close the computer, don't have the news on. Yeah. I I wasn't sure if maybe she was the one putting it on because he's constantly sort of for the rest of the movie, like telling her to turn off the TV and, and stay off the news. But I'd be like friends or nothing like we're doing TBS repeats or like you're going to figure it out. Yeah, I mean, that's what she ultimately like. He's right to want to keep her offline and off the news right now. I think that that was probably going to be the best thing for her. Especially like, you know, in the first 48 hours of any case, people try to poke theories. They try to poke holes in the story that like at the first 48 hours after something like some sort of conclusion is reached. Everyone's trying to prove it wrong. So we see um, they're saying in other news was was once a Hollywood style rescue and homecoming has now taken an odd turn. So they turn to the TV and they say that Hannah took to a chat room and held court with moonstruck fans about many topics, including which movie star she would like to date. I didn't get to see who the movie star was. Did you? I didn't see any evidence that that was a real question because it wasn't in the article. I'm like, I wish that was there so bad. I would have, I would love to know that nugget. I would like to know that more than like that. She's a Drake fan. Oh, totally. And so the news makes this seem like this has completely changed the public perception, which is not true. I mean, let's be real. Hannah got 1,097 questions while she was gone. I feel like that's a a fairly moderate amount Mm -hmm. of questions. So like, she's not. I mean, not to like shit on her, but she's not that famous. Like, <laughs> like people were like over, like crazy engagement, right? So the fact that the news is making such a big deal of this gives her dad, you know, a moment to be really furious about this. Like, what was she doing in a chat room? This is giving people something to obsess over. You know, he doesn't really. Brett doesn't really understand that he's had a couple days to acclimate to this news coverage, and she's been stranded in the woods, starving. So she's like very much thrown back into this world. She doesn't understand the big deal, but her dad says like, you know, I need your help for the funeral next week. And again, we sort of see this actress not really have a here or there reaction. She's sort of like a little bit lukewarm about it. So Mm -hmm. she's fixed on the news that saying she and Jim had some sort of romantic affair together and that there was evidence of a weird vacation the two of them took together to Los Angeles. So Hannah runs from the TV to the front door and she opens the front door and all the cameras start flashing and her dad grabs her before she can say anything to them. And he's like, what are you doing? And she's like, I can't have people saying this about me. Yeah. He's like, we, we just aren't, we we shouldn't engage with them at all. Like answers are going to prompt more questions. So she goes, that's easy for you to say. You're not being the one call, called uh, Lakeside Lolita, which is kind of, I mean, that's fucked up. It's really fucked up. And this is just like classic, like evidence of the media trying to implicate a 16 year old girl in her own abduction. Like, yeah. I just don't see where you make that logical leap. They're sexualizing her. I mean, the thing is, I would say, honestly, it is reminiscent of like students that sleep with their teachers. And right away, everyone sort of has an attitude about it. Like whether it's a young female that has that hits different than when like when she's cheating with her male teacher, hooking up with her male teacher, 
being statutory raped by her male teacher or one of the boy, right? Like people sort of stick to an archetype of what that must mean about someone who that happens to. Yeah. And it does just like really give me pause. Like, let's think about this for a second. Like you really can't implicate a 16 year old in her own abduction by like a 50 year old man. Like, let's really like, let's be logical here. Like she's a victim. She's being abused. There's really no other way to look at this. It's fascinating to me that people are going to reach for another way to look at something that is just like so obviously predatory. Right. And like, of course, the way it's covered is also sort of dependent, unfortunately, like on her looks, right? Like if she, you know, she's a beautiful young girl. So it's like, there's a lot of people putting it on there being like, well, of course, this old man was attracted to her. And like, she just happened to fall for it. Or there's going to be people that if she was, you know, maybe a bit homely or whatever, which I don't really believe any young woman is. But like, let's say she was like more perceived as homely, right? It would be like, well, she had terrible self-esteem and she saw this as an opportunity. Like, there's so many disgusting ways that people skew something like this. And it's not like, you know, if it's possible, it's like, how can they how can they put the puzzle pieces together in a way that makes sense for this story? So the day of the funeral, the press is all there. Her father tells her not to give a reaction. Meanwhile, there's a reporter literally yelling in her face through the window of the SUV that she had a relationship with this guy, Jim. And once she gets inside, her father like leads her in. Her friend Cassie surprises her with a Starbucks, which, you know, I'm going to just bump on the idea that like Cassie's even fault for a lot of her behavior it seems to me that cassie's a little bit of like a a wild animal like her parents are not they're like she's not taught funeral etiquette she's not there's no like any all of the things that probably would have been in place for me as a kid being like it's inappropriate to show up with a frappuccino to a funeral like yeah as much as that would mean a lot to her before cheerleading practice or something someday the funeral is not the venue to have like a green straw and a whipped cream lid, right? So Cassie tells her that all this bad stuff aside, the attention she's getting is major and she may be able to swing a career out of this. And the press barges into the church and gets a photo of her. And it's just like a brief moment of her sort of like holding the Starbucks cup and talking to her friend. But it's like the Starbucks cup is... It's an issue. It looks like she's sort of having a coffee day at her mom's funeral and not taking it seriously. And as soon as the door is shut and the press is closed out, she lays her eyes upon this photo of her mother and Ethan at the front of the altar. And I think that this is sort of to symbolize that she hadn't really digested what's going on right Mm -hmm. after she was handed this Starbucks. So she gives a Starbucks to Cassie. She goes to the bathroom where she tries to deal with like an oncoming panic attack. And then after the funeral, like, you know, it goes through. The funeral is, is uh, I have to say, this. <laughs> were you raised Catholic? I was not. I was raised evangelical. Okay. I feel like this uh, priest is a little, like, uh, kind of cool for a Catholic priest. He seems like he believes in science. He's got glasses. He's, like, young. He seems like he might have a liberal arts education. Like, this this is not the Catholic priest that I grew up with. I am, like, is this what it's like to be Catholic in Southern California? 
Totally, right? Like he has this sort of chill vibe and he tells Hannah that he prays for her and that he hopes the family finds healing. So at the very end of the mass, the FBI agent McKinnon, he, um, he comes in and after the mass, Hannah offers three little boys from Ethan's league to take a photo with her. And again, this is like a question of funeral edit. I don't know if it's appropriate or not to show up in your football jersey to a mass. I think maybe because Ethan was a little football player, his teammates showed up in their jerseys. But I would argue that this is not appropriate for a funeral. I would agree if they weren't like eight-year-old kids. Like I get, I get that they're there to support, you know, to grieve their eight-year-old friend who died that was on the football team with them. So I didn't really like, I, I think it also just is my perspective. Like I would never question something a child was doing at a funeral. Like it would just, it would never stir a reaction in me if I saw an eight-year-old in a jersey or a sixteen-year-old with a Starbucks. That's a really good point. I remember there being like a murder in the headlines not long ago, where the kids wore pajamas to the funeral, and the media was very judgmental of that, and people were sort of like their kids going to their mom's funeral, like they want to be comfortable. And I think that that a lot of people are not used to allowing comfort to be important. Yeah, I would just be on the team of the child that like just lost her mother and brother. I see like it is kind of a comical image to see like a 16 year old girl with a frappuccino at a funeral. Like I get it. It's like a little bit. Like, what, what are you doing, girl? But I also see from the perspective of a friend, it's like, what do you really know about your friend Hannah? You know that she likes Drake and she loves Frappuccinos. So, of course, you want to do something nice for her on this, like, day of her mother's funeral. So you bring her a Frappuccino. Like, you're not really thinking through the image of it all. It's just like, what's something cute and nice that I can do for my sad friend? Yeah, I mean, we have to sort of acknowledge that I feel like Hannah's probably experiencing major whiplash right now because she was gone. Like she, you know, probably didn't feel great about the idea that she didn't know where mom and Ethan were and that as far as she knew, they were tied up in the garage still at Jim's house. But, you know, she went through her own tragic experience is, is now slowly understanding and comprehending that her mom and brother are also dead. So this is like, you know, she's acclimating, I think. But let's play this scene, 1639 to 1750. Hey, Hey, buddy. Good. Hey, thanks for coming. You're welcome. Ethan loved football, loved his team. The season was supposed to start in two weeks. I just thought I'd take some Instagram photos to remember him, you know? I'm so sorry for your loss. Thank you, Agent McKinnon. How are you holding up? Okay, I suppose. Uh, I wouldn't let them bother you. It's just a lot of people talking, that's all. Thank you. You're a strong girl, Hannah. And don't let anyone take away from the memory of your mother and your brother. I won't. And look, if you ever want to talk, and I mean it. Thank you. I promise it will get better. 
thanks for believing there's not so many of you out there anymore. Sad. Yeah. It's rough. It's rough. And like, I can, again, this is like a huge generational shift that's happening when this happens. I can see why, you know, her offering to take a photo with these boys versus like them asking her would maybe be, you know, an eyebrow razor or whatever. But as far as she's concerned, you know, she is taking these photos because she wants to remember what's going on. This is like in memory of her mother and brother. So her yeah. dad is like tense at dinner and he wants to know why people are saying that she was smiling in the church. And she says she wanted to take pictures with the team to remember Ethan. But the problem in his eyes is that she went ahead and posted them online. And she's like, I feel like everyone's, you know, judging my grief, essentially. She doesn't say it in yeah. those words, but that's it. And Hannah sees that Jim's sister is on the news now saying that she warned Jim that Hannah was trouble that Hannah was like a puppy dog with him, flirty, sending pictures. And the anchor, I guess, the way that they're staging this is I, I like maybe like a Larry King where like this anchor is sitting at a desk with this woman asking her questions. Mm-hmm. And he's like, well, why didn't he just distance himself? And she says, well, he was close with Tina and he wanted to help the kids while Brett was in Tennessee. And Hannah was the kind of girl who would take advantage of someone like Jim. And she wouldn't put anything, not even murder, past her. One thing she knows is that Jim wasn't capable of murder. So Hannah and her dad fight it out in the kitchen. She doesn't get how Jim's sister can get away with saying all of that. Her dad yells that, you know, at this point, like people are pointing to her because she's taking selfies and going into online chats and generally appearing flippant about the whole thing. And Hannah's like, well, do you think I really deserve to be accused of murder? And that really de-escalates the conversation. And he's like, no. All right, I'm not okay with that. And she's like, we need to fight back against this. We need to answer to this. And he says, if she wants the spotlight to be hotter, she needs to be prepared for what comes. Because, um, you know, there's no coming back from that. So she's like, please call the Today Show. Because we found out that, like, you know, he had previously declined to do an interview. She's like, please call the Today Show. I want to do it. So they arrive to New York. We see the exterior of NBC Studios. She meets the anchor, Colleen Ryan, and sits on the stage with her dad, having final touches put on her uh, put on her face. All of a sudden, this becomes very real. So let's play twenty two forty eight to twenty three fifty four. We're back. It has been over a month since Hannah Anderson was kidnapped by the man believed to have murdered her mother and young brother. She now joins us in the studio to talk about that ordeal. Hannah Anderson, good morning to you. How are you doing today? Um, good. Tell me, why is it important for you to speak out? I feel like a lot of people have been judging me, judging what I went through, making up stuff they don't have the answers to. Mm. So by speaking out, you're hoping that you can put a lot of the speculation to rest. Silence them once and for all. Yeah, hopefully. So I want to go back to the beginning, to your family's relationship with Jim DiMaggio. Somebody you knew your entire life. What was he like? I'd known him since I was born. Okay. So then we cut back to a simpler time. I should point out from that Today Show scene that 
They're trying to play into the idea that she was awkward on camera. Like, she didn't really know what camera to look at. There's a moment where they cut to, like, a cameraman, like, sort of pointing to the red light to let her know that that's the camera she's supposed to speak into. But the way it's filmed, and honestly, from the Today Show interview that I saw, there's no weirdness around that. And I'm not really sure why they're playing into that, but there must be some reason for it. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. I think that this ultimately this Lifetime movie was on her side. And so they do want to like show that she is the 16-year-old girl who is out of her depth a little bit with the situation. Yeah, I will say that Lifetime is great about that generally. They do a really good job of, you know, pointing out that there's some validity in all of these young girls, you know, even when they, even when it's murky, they always want to give, especially the young girl, the benefit of the doubt, which I appreciate. It is television for women, you know? Yeah. Um, we cut back to like this, you know, simpler time, the way things were before everything went wrong. It's like a evening dinner on their porch. There's a dog in the yard and Tina asked Hannah to help her bring the dishes out to the table. And Jim is, uh, you know, at the grill, he's like, you know, boying around with Ethan. He's just doing like dude shit, right? Talking about football. And Hannah and her mom come out holding salads. And Hannah and him have sort of this, what could be perceived as a longing glance. And it's interesting because like on Jim's end, it's objectively horny. Right. But then on her end, she might not be old enough to realize that he's like looking at her with horn dog eyes. Yeah. And why would you think that? Yeah, that's the page that I'm on. I'm like, I don't think she has any clue that this old guy who is her dad's friend is lusting after her. Like, I just don't think that she has that in her head. Yeah. Why would she jump to that conclusion as a 16 year old girl? And this is an uncle figure. Totally. And like this guy, I mean, she does call him uncle. That's a great way to put it is that this is like Uncle Jim, you know, and as far as she's concerned, he's just like the adult in her life that's sort of taking up for her. And I don't know that, you know, Tina was like some crazy parent. Honestly, it seemed like Tina was a lot more loose than my mom would have been. So it's sort of just like this, you know, teenage perception of like she's living the hard life, like things have been done to like wrong to her. So Right. You know, this this dinner scene is very interesting because like, you know, while they're eating, Jim prompts Hannah to talk to her mom about the idea of an L.A. trip by asking her, if, you know, have you talked to your mom about what we've been talking about, which, you know, sort of lets us know they have side conversations. And she says that her birthday is coming up and Uncle Jim invited her to go to L.A. with him. He's got to take some stuff to his sisters. And he, she thought that, you know, this could it could work out. And Tina's like, are you fucking nuts? Like, I'm not letting my 16 year old go to Los Angeles without a parent. It's 130 miles away. And Jim tells Tina that Hannah's not a little girl anymore. And Tina shoots back that, you know, she'll talk to her daughter as she seems she sees fit. Yeah. It's like, well, you don't really talk to Hannah. You talk down to her. And I don't like that. I don't like the idea of a trusted adult figure wielding language like that against a mom. Oh, it was so beyond inappropriate. I mean, that's where I was stopping and thinking, okay, there are some red flags here that maybe mom should notice. Like it's not, I, I mean, my parents would have never in a million years let me go on a road trip with like one of their buddies. 
it would just, I, I, I definitely think they would have noticed a strangeness if one of my dad's buddies had like a special interest in me and wanted to hang out with me one-on-one as a teenage right. girl. Yeah. I do. Ultimately, I, I feel for the situation. I don't know how this actual woman was, but it just is a red flag. And for him to have this like special relationship with the teenage girl and then openly side with her in front of her mom. Yeah, the only guy I can think of that was like a close family friend that wasn't like an openly gay man or something that yeah. I would have trusted to to go on this sort of journey with probably would have never even thought to ask about that sort of thing. Like you yeah. probably would have thought that was wildly inappropriate. And that's probably why I he's the only like man in my life that I trusted in some ways. Yeah. But, you know, Jim tells her, yeah, so she doesn't really talk to her like an adult, whatever. So he assures her that he will be with her the whole time so nothing bad can happen to her. And Hannah reminds her mom that Uncle Jim taught both her and Ethan self-defense so she can protect herself, which, again, is like a nod to her being a teen. Because, you know, Ethan, this eight-year-old boy knowing self-defense, like how far could that possibly get an eight-year-old? <laughs> like... It also shows that they have, like, had physical contact. Like, they have a hobby that involves, like, wrestling together, essentially. That's a great point. That is a great point. And so her mom says that she'll think about it. That's not enough for Hannah. She says that her dad would have said yes already. Her mom never lets her do anything. You know, it's very much that attitude. And then she gets up and leaves the table. And Tina turns to Jim and says, don't ever tell me how to raise my daughter. Ever. So then Hannah tells the Today Show host that not long after, they found out that Uncle Jim lost his job and was going to move out. They didn't know if they would ever see him again, so she let her go with him one last trip to L.A. So we see the two of them on Hollywood Boulevard, which, I mean, we can talk about this after the clip is over, but I will say we're both Massachusetts girls. I There's something so magical about Hollywood Boulevard. I worked at a restaurant on Hollywood Boulevard for a while. And it was such a terrible experience that it really like burst that bubble for me, kind of broke the illusion of glamour. But I would say my, my first visit for sure. Oh yeah. I mean, like, let's be real. There's actually nothing glamorous about Hollywood Boulevard. I, when I first moved here, I lived in K town. So I would take the train at uh, Western Mm-hmm. Western Western I would take that to Hollywood sometimes like because I had no money so like I would mm-hmm. just like get stoned and walk around up there and be like it's gonna be okay I'm gonna make it like there's these pink stars on the sidewalk and I've seen those my whole life like it's this is I'm I am where I want to be right but yeah no I mean Hollywood Boulevard is actually in in all reality a very dark place where did you work on the boulevard dude I worked a couple doors down from Pantages at this restaurant that ultimately failed. It used to be like a burger joint. And then when I got there, they had flipped it to an Italian place. Okay. So one of those. Yeah. That's the thing I think in a lot of major cities, but LA has that in spades, just like these storefronts that sort of turn over. And every time a new person buys it, you're like, that's ambitious. Like no one makes it work there. Oh, truly. And just not a very good business plan. Terrible marketing. I I was very blown away by how poorly that whole situation was run, but it was also, I had just moved to LA and I was just desperate for that paycheck. So we made it work. Let's play this clip 2611 to 2710. Look at this. Must be 
awesome being loved by so many people. Well, people love talking about them, but there's a big difference. Spencer Tracy, who's that? Oh, he's just a old-time movie star from way back in the old days. Like the 90s? Yeah, before that. Uh, Who you got? No one. This is going to be mine someday. Oh, really? Mm. You, want a, you want that kind of attention, huh? Are you kidding? Who wouldn't want to be famous? All right. Well, here. Let me. There you go. Come on. Really work it. All right? There you go. Nice. Like this? Yeah, yeah. Keep going. That's good. That's good. Arch your back a little. That's fine. It's good. Nice. Okay, let me see. That's good. What? What? Who you sent it to? Instagram. Dylan's gonna freak when he sees these. Is Dylan like a boyfriend or something? More like a friend friend. This episode is sponsored by Factor. Okay, here's what I love about Factor Meals. They make eating better easy. They're fresh, never frozen. They take two minutes in the microwave. You get to pick what meals you're going to eat. Over 35 different recipes are available to you to choose from. Their delicious recipes are chef-crafted and nutritionist-approved. They are very filling. Like, not too much, but they're perfectly filling. I had the keto meal last week. I've been doing the keto meals, basically. And there was one day in particular that I just remember going to bed and being like, I'm actually full. Like I ate hours ago and I'm actually full. Normally I need a little snack snack. You know, I get up to the chocolate after dark, but I was totally full, completely satisfied. And my meal was delicious. You can also do calorie smart meals, vegan or veggie and protein plus. There's also other stuff you can try as well. You can get as much or as little as you want and reschedule or pause at any time. Personally, I get six meals. You can go up to 18. That's what my boyfriend does. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash mothermayi50 and use code mothermayi50 to get 50% off. That's code mothermayi5050 at factormeals.com slash mothermayi50 to get 50% off. You've probably heard the name Mary, Queen of Scots, and maybe you know the importance of her legacy to the British monarchy. But how much do you know about her life and what she was really like? For instance, did you know that she preferred to have her eggs scrambled or that giving gifts was her love language? In my podcast, Vulgar History, we'll be talking about all that and more during an eight-part miniseries about the fascinating life of Mary, Queen of Scots. Vulgar History is a feminist women's history comedy podcast where we don't shy away from the messy, complicated lives of women from the olden times. Particularly with women in history, it's easier to use broad strokes to portray who they were. And it's like we forget they probably also had messy lives, complicated relationships, and maybe things weren't as black and white as they might seem in a textbook. But I'm dedicated to sharing the sides of the stories we don't always hear. And each episode is supported by rigorous historical research. Turns out there's really something about Mary Queen of Scots. So be sure to turn into my series about Mary Queen of Scots and check out the other incredible women I've talked about while you're there. You can listen and subscribe to Vulgar History wherever you get your podcasts and learn more at vulgarhistory.com. So, 
So every adult woman, I would say, at least knows that when a guy is asking random questions about a potential straight male you have in your life, slightly defensively, that your spidey senses, like... Yeah. They tingle. This this scene was a shivers moment for me. It was unsettling. And there was even like an extra that couldn't totally keep his cool. Like in the when he says Archer back a little bit, there was one extra in the background who was sort of like, what the fuck is going on here? Like, What movie is this? What's happening? <laughs> right. And like there was actually a guy I noticed that they had to probably get rid of who was like standing very close to where they were filming and was filming them filming. Oh, that's so funny. I didn't even notice. So he's doing that thing, you know, poking around, sort of like, you know, being like, oh, you got a boyfriend sort of thing. So then the two of them grab lunch in a cafe. We're also going to play this scene because this is where things start to go south. 2719 yeah. to 2944. Is that Jake Hall sitting over there with Channing Tatum? Oh, you're bad. <laughs> this food is so good. Uh, my mom cooks like the same five things over and over. At least my dad used to have a little variety. Uh, how's your dad doing anyway? You talked to him recently? My mom says they're taking time apart, but being 2,000 miles away isn't helping. Right, right. You and Ethan hanging in? He still a little, thinks everything's fine. And you? Great. I love watching my family fall apart. You shouldn't have to deal with those kinds of things. You should be free doing what you want to do. You know, doing what feels good. Tell that to my mom. She doesn't get along with anyone. My dad's side of the family won't even talk to her. She's just so... I don't even know anymore. Well, you've got me. Yeah. But for how long, I mean... Who knows where you'll end up. Well, let's not worry about that now. I'm just enjoying the moment. I was just thinking, you know, if, you know, if you were a little older, or, you know, if we were the same age, or what? I, I know it's funny, right? It's uh, ah, it's thinking like I, I have a crush on you. What do you mean? No, like a family thing, like like I care about you. Dylan just likes the photo. Ah, of course he did. I'm trying to have a conversation here. I'll just take one second. Yeah. Well, okay. whatever you're texting or posting, I, I can wait till later, okay? Tell us much. Hey, you know, I'm, I'm trying to open up to you here. I mean, the least you could do is listen, right? I mean, is Dylan ever taking you to Hollywood? Why are you doing this? Oh, now I'm doing something. But it looks to me like you're the one being a little bit ungrateful. Can I have my phone back, please? Let's get out of here. Go where? <sighs> my sisters. I'm done here. Why? The damn said so. That's why. Come on. All right, so... He's acting like a rejected boy. He's acting like he just took you out and bought you a sandwich. And like over the course of that meal, you know, maybe you didn't realize you were on a date. And over the course of that meal, you know, you mentioned someone else. And then all of a sudden the the attitude changes. And the most terrifying part of this 
is that she's a minor that's stuck on this trip with this man. They are staying at his sister's house. The sister, by the way, is a very curious creature who the, you know, most recent kind of big update in the public eye about this case is that back in 2017, they were still working on finalizing this. There was a $20 million lawsuit against the FBI um, against this case for, um, you know, wrongful death. She filed uh, this suit, okay, in 2013 after, um, you know, her brother was shot. And this article says the lawsuit argues that the FBI SWAT officers did not need to kill James Lee DiMaggio when they found him in Idaho wilderness with Hannah Anderson. Um, she says, it, you know, the lawyer says it looks really it looked like it was really a hit squad and not a rescue squad. There was a lot of opportunity for the FBI to say, hey, freeze F- FBI. I love the idea that the lawyer is being like, they could have just said, hey, freeze. It's the FBI. <laughs> this is yeah, like- and then he totally would have given up the 16 year old girl that he abducted and murdered the family of. Absolutely. For sure. It would have been that easy if they had just said, hey, please. But yeah, so she's like, you know, going for that $20 million. And I mean, I'll just say honestly that the sister seems like one of those miserable opportunists. And this is like so much less. I mean, she's the first one to sell Hannah out. Oh, it's it's very it's very unsettling. I mean, I I respect a distrust of the FBI. Like I can get behind that. Of course. But her trying to throw a teenage girl under the bus to the media saying that this 16-year-old seduced her grown-ass brother, very disturbing. Honestly, is not a good look. Does not make her look very good. I do think you're probably right. She was just trying to come out of this with cash. I mean, I also recognize sure she's grieving her brother. Like that's a pretty big deal. And this but he did difficult. a child. Yeah, this yeah. would be difficult to accept about yeah. a family member. But I will say that for every tragic instance, instant like this, there's like people on any side of this that could be trying to profit from it. There's always people mm-hmm. that are trying to, you know, get someone cut out of the will. There's always people that are ready to sue. Like it's just human nature, I think, at this point. Honestly, it's the American way. Yeah, it, it's so true. And and genuinely, like this woman was sketchy from the jump. If you think about it, letting her adult brother bring like a 16 year old girl into her house to spend the night, it's there are red flags there that she should have bumped on from the beginning. And when I was going through the Ask FM, it did appear as if she was saying at one point that maybe this was her godmother. But I don't think. Oh, so. yeah, yeah. Yeah, I didn't. I didn't get any clear message from that but she did say godmother you're right because someone in the comments was like saying basically like oh you shared a hotel room with this guy and in the real ask fm she was like actually no we stayed at my godmother's place so maybe they weren't truly staying with or maybe this woman was her godmother and she's just a shitty person bad i mean i guess that makes sense if if jim was her dad's best friend right he might might make these siblings as her godparents Totally. So, you know, at this point, again, family crush. We've now hit on that twice. Hannah says on the show that things seemed weird and she never told anyone what was said in Los Angeles because he was best friends with her dad and she didn't want to ruin things between them. I yeah. totally buy that. And well, me too, especially with her dad being gone and her being concerned that her parents were going to divorce. Like, of course, she wouldn't want to make waves. And, you know, any crafty, especially like teen, wants to keep things leveraged in a way 
that makes yeah. sense for them where, you know, yeah, this guy is creepy, but he also vouches for her. So, you know, if she can do anything to sort of not totally fully alienate him in the hopes that mm-hmm. something else may benefit her. Right. You know, people aren't perfect. So Tina, Ethan and Hannah are eating breakfast like, you know, a couple days later. And Tina says that Hannah has been home for two days and she hasn't spoken about her trip. And Hannah's like, well, I really don't know what you want me to say. And she's like, well, did you have a good time? And she's like, yeah, I had a lovely time. And Ethan's like, well, you were crying in your room this morning. And Tina's like, listen, everyone needs to calm down. Uncle Jim has been a huge help since our since your dad left. And Hannah clarifies to her mom that her dad didn't leave. He's working and he's trying to hold the family together, which is more than she can say for her. And so this is, I guess, maybe where we're trying to establish that if there are doubters of Hannah, it could spring from this, that she does seem to have some animosity towards her mom right now. Yeah, but also the media wasn't in the house with them. So I don't know where they would sort of get that vibe unless she was posting online. At that time, which is hugely possible. There's also always like sources that come out. Like she even said that to a friend. Maybe it got back, you know, to the media in some way. That's true. But Tina's desperate to help her and says that she can't do anything unless Hannah tells her what's going on. And Ethan's like, our dad will be back soon. And Hannah's like, yeah, right. And, you know, her mom's like, what the fuck, Hannah? Like, don't tell your brother that. And she's like, listen, someone needs to be real with the kid. Okay, yeah. so Ethan runs away from the table and Tina tells Hannah that Uncle Jim invited them over one last time before he moves on Saturday. She better get that attitude in check or they're going to have a problem. And Hannah's like, why well, have cheer today so I can't go? And her mom's like, you'll go after cheer. So it's interesting that her mom is, you know, obviously she values this relationship, but it does seem to go from a place where no one was talking about Jim to you're going to respect your uncle Jim. And it's like no one like I understand like the idea of what they're doing here but the scene just lacked nuance to me in that sort of way where they were looping it back around properly. I I agree. The main thing that I was kind of curious about walking away from this movie is the relationship between her dad and Jim and how they somehow allowed her relationship with Jim to escalate to them, like having alone time and learning self-defense together and all this stuff. Like they apparently had such an intense amount of trust for this guy. I know I'm kind of dying to know more about how this dad and Jim were, you know, close in the first place myself. Like it seems like they must have an almost brother relationship, right? He's uncle Jim. He's not just Jim. And you know, once Tina leaves, we see that Jim has been texting Hannah. He says, where are you? I want number two letter C you. Right. So Hannah looks a little bit grossed out by it, um, which is fair. So then we come back to the commercial to the today show interview. And Hannah says that she has just had, you know, she just had cheer that day. So her mom dropped her off. Then we cut to a overhead of the town, a beautiful drone shot. And we see a title that says August 3rd, the day. So this is the day that this happens. And I like that they called it the day. Um, Hannah texts Jim that she's waiting out front and she tells today that Jim picked her up because her brother's game had already finished and everything seemed normal and fine. Mm -hmm. And on the ride home, they talk about her team and how they're doing really well right now. And he says that it's important that she has something in her life that she loves. Then he segues that and to say that he wants to apologize for some of the stuff that happened in LA, the way he acted and the things he said, there's been a lot of stress with the move and he shouldn't have done all that. 
And she's like, oh, it's all good. And he's like, it means a lot to me to know that we're okay. And then the Today Show host asked her when she knew something was wrong. And she says when they got to the house and her mom's car wasn't there. Mm-hmm. So we see them pull up to the house. She clocks that the car's not there. She asks where it is. And he goes, oh, Ethan probably went to play next door with the kids. You know how they are. And it's interesting. It's two things here. One, why would Ethan going next door to play with the kids change the location of the car? Yeah, zero. It makes zero sense. But then he does this sort of like team building line of you know how they are to establish this common enemy, which is right. her mom and Ethan. Right. So once they get into his place, which isn't too packed up for a person who's supposedly moving. I mean, there's really like this is a single man and he mm-hmm. had like a stack of dishes unpacked, whereas maybe I mean, I probably would just be free balling it out there with my dinner maybe take out, but he's got not even one plate. He's got the whole stack. So she spots her mom's purse and keys when she gets in. She's like, where's my family? And he's like, go grab me a beer and we'll talk about it. Once she goes to the uh, fridge, she sees a broken mug on the floor. Yeah. Jim kicks back on the couch. He gets nice and comfortable. She brings him the beer. I don't know. I'm a little 50 50 about that. I feel like I grew up bringing adults beers from the fridge, (laughs) but like, it's a little weird to go ask a teenager to bring you a beer. Yeah. Well, especially in context of everything else that we've seen from this guy with the sort of grooming techniques and just his overall demeanor toward her. Right. The fact that he, I mean, the fact that he drinks this way in front of her to begin with is kind of dodgy. So yeah, um, she starts to run for the door when she realizes what's going on and he grabs Mm -hmm. her. He's like, I wouldn't do that if I were you. And she starts to yell for help and he throws her to the ground and says, shut up or I'll kill them. And she's in disbelief when this happens to the point where the actress like has a little bit of a smile on her face. And like, you know, she's like, like, what did you just say? And he's like, I don't want to hurt anyone, but I'm going to do what I have to do. She's like, well, why are you acting like this? This isn't like you. And he's like, I'm going to tell you what's going on if you just sit down in this chair. So there's this like wooden chair there. It looks like it's a part of a dining set. She's like, what's going on? Like, is this some sort of test? And he tosses her some handcuffs, tells her to put them on and put the other through the arm rest, I guess. So he's like having her, you know, he's basically asking her to aid and and tying herself up. And he zip ties her feet and tells her that if she just stays calm, she won't get hurt. And she asks again, where is my mom? And he says that, you know, she and Ethan are safe, but you need to listen to what I have to say. So, you know, this is I'm going to tell you what you need to know. So you're not afraid. He doesn't want to leave San Diego. They took my job. They took my home. There's nothing left for me here. She's like, listen, of course, you know, of course there is. We're going to figure it out. And he's like, nope. He's like, you and I, we can start a whole new life. Just the two of us get away from all of this. Your mom. I mean, isn't that what you want? You want freedom? And she's like, please let, let me go. And he pauses for a moment and then he takes out a gun and he removes some bullets from it. It's time to play Russian roulette. So he says, <sighs> how many things in life are there? where you get a one in five chance, a five in one chance to live, to live. Not that many, huh? And she asks him, like, please don't do this. And he puts the gun in his mouth and he pulls the trigger. The gun clicks and there's no bullet. She's like, please don't do this. You know, you know, you have so much to live for, Jim. And he says, oh, Hannah, tell me all about what I have to live for. Because you've already made it clear how you feel about me. 
Now, maybe two can play. And he holds the gun to her head, repeating five and six, five and six. So she's, I know, right? Do you know anyone that's ever died from Russian roulette? I don't. I think that that was like a big 80s and 90s thing, to be honest. Like, I feel like that's very much, that was very much that time. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I just didn't grow up with any kind of like gun culture. Same, but it was always like people that you didn't know would have a gun. Like it would be someone like found one in their dad's office. Yeah. Yeah, this scene really, I mean, I did think the scene was pretty effective in just kind of establishing how far gone this guy is mentally. Totally, because it's like his attachment to Russian roulette is, you know, crazy. And this is another thing that people try and poke holes in her story, right? They, They say like, oh, well, if she was playing Russian roulette, how could she do that if she was bound up? And they don't realize, like, oh, he was holding the gun to her head. Like, this was not. Yeah. yeah. It's so, like, duh. Of course he's holding the gun. Like, what? The, the, I just, the reaching happening with the media here, trying to reach for ways to implicate this girl really boggles my mind. Absolutely. And she's like, please just tell me where my mom and Ethan are before you do this. And he's like, they're safe. They're in the garage. And right then she starts to hear some muffled screams coming from the next room. And she yells to Ethan, like, Ethan, it's going to be Okay. And he wants to know, you know, what it is I have to live for. Like, tell me more about this thing I have to live for. And she's like, listen, you know, I'll go with you. Please don't hurt anyone. And he starts laughing and he goes, this is going to be a whole new life for us. And she's like, I just don't feel good. I think I'm going to throw up. So he says, I have something for you. He brings her a pill and a glass of water and he tells her to take it. And she says she'll do whatever he wants. Just let her mom and Ethan go. And then immediately after taking this pill, which I believe is supposed to be Ambien. Oh, okay. I wasn't sure. Yeah, because, like, I mean, it it has a, obviously a very potent effect. Like, this girl's knocked out for two days, which isn't crazy for a 16-year-old taking her first Ambien. Um, right. But she starts to feel woozy right away. She wants to know what he gave her, and she slowly dozes off to sleep. So in the morning, it's a a misty day in the woods, and Jim checks himself out in a small mirror. The home is dark, and Hannah's still asleep. He brushes her cheek with his hand and lets himself into the garage. And this man touches her cheek when she's sleeping on this ambience so much, like... (sighs) I want to both like get her a facial immediately and also like, <laughs> apologize because that is such like someone touching your face. It's so personal. It's nasty. All so, around nasty. He lets himself into the garage and we see there's a dog there named Kelly. Oh, so sad. And he shoots Kelly, this little dachshund. She's so fucking cute. Then he goes mm-hmm. deeper into the garage where we, you know, we see he picks up a crowbar and Tina and Ethan are laying on the floor, tied up, gagged. They're both crying. Tina sort of wiggles her body towards Ethan. And just then Jim beats both of them to death with this crowbar. Now their bodies were, especially Tina's body was reported to be like very tampered with. Like she was very much tortured over yeah. the time. I I did read about that too, and I guess it's possible that maybe the son died in the fire and wasn't as like brutally handled. But this just does show the rage, the hate toward Tina, mm-hmm. which I think is not super touched on in this movie. That he has really strong animosity toward Tina, and that his hatred toward Tina could have been a strong motivation here. So okay, let's get into that because I wasn't able to find a lot about it, and I wonder if you did. Like I. 
it's very obvious that this is at least partially a Tina thing, right? It's like, yeah. it's, it's of course, he has his eyes on the young daughter. Right. But, I mean, this, his best friend and Tina are going through a situation, right? right. It seems like at this point, they're not going to get back together. Of course, we all know that, you know, people tend to turn their back on the significant other of their friend who right. they're having a hard time with. But like, what do you think the deal truly was with Tina? I don't know. I didn't get a lot from online, but I did kind of think later when you see that the father has a very touchy relationship with Tina's parents. That was that they're not a big fan of him. That's pretty rough. That there's just some animosity going on between the father and Tina. And that would probably rub off on Jim, who also sees Tina as ultimately like the biggest roadblock between him and this child that he is obsessed with. Yeah, but I almost wonder like if it's, you know, it's a little chicken or egg for me where it's like, I wonder if he had feelings for the daughter before he truly hated Tina. Yeah, or if it was one of those things where maybe he was obsessed with Tina and jealous of his best friend. And then, of course, you know, sort of projected then that onto the teenage daughter. That's an excellent call, actually. Yeah, that's an excellent call. Like, he couldn't have her. Yeah, there's just a lot of questions in a case like this where there is very few details. And even this movie doesn't touch on a lot of details. Like, it is very straightforward, almost surface level. You kind of have to dig for these clues to kind of give you more information on what could have been going on here. I could also just see this guy as being this pathetic, you know, not well alcoholic who also was, you know, a pedophile and obsessed with this child like there's a lot of different directions to take in how he got to this place of derangement oh absolutely absolutely i mean the mental decay that takes place is pretty massive i will say though that this is again something that i touch on a lot the turnaround isn't insane the way it is with a lot of cases like i almost felt the michelle carter movie was wasted because like you know, there was still there's still so much going on in that case. And it would have been a much better movie if they had just waited for the conclusion of what was going mm-hmm. on there. But they like to sort of act on these movies and get them out quickly. This was a two year turnaround from when the mm-hmm. abduction happened to when the movie came out. So they didn't really you know, you don't really get to reflect when you're talking about something essentially in real time in some way. Yeah, Lifetime's always jumping on those rights like first thing the the story drops they're ready to make the movie and it drives me nuts because like you know i don't know if you are a, a viewer of svu law and order svu i have watched a decent amount of svu i'm not like that every episode person but i'm i'm familiar and like something i always loved about svu and i think like viewers of this show will agree that that a treat was is like two or three times a season, they would take something like an incredibly literal, almost rip from the headlines Mm. type story. And there would be a, you know, celebrity guest in that episode. And it would be something that like a lot of energy that season was put into those episodes. And right now when you watch SVU, the entire thing, it's like, we are reliving life at this, like, you know, six months behind where, you know, so many exact details from certain cases are pulled. Like this last one, the season premiere was not only are we in Corona, but we see the situation in the Bramble where that woman calls the cops on that man 
when she her dog was like acting crazy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We get George Floyd and Breonna Taylor name checked throughout the episode. Like it comes down to the fact that this bisexual closeted man had hooked up with a young Asian man whose family didn't know. And it like it became it became such like honestly, like I made a joke about it. Like it's like a zeitgeist salad now where I used to appreciate when most of the season would be original storylines that were maybe inspired by ideas that were going on where, okay, like you can take the idea of this sort of potential like cyber crime, right? And include that in because that's maybe what's going on right now. But now it's just like cultural Mad Libs. And it's like (laughs) frustrating because like these stories are all you know, deserve their own sort of moment. And we also just lit like so literally lived that like the, the fact that the central park thing happened at the beginning of quarantine is fucking crazy. I am on the same page with you and I'm truly, I don't want any content that is directly referencing our current situation. I don't want pandemic entertainment why would I want to escape into something that's just reminding me of my reality? Like that was the biggest thing where I was rolling my eyes when like Freeform and then Netflix did their little like quarantine series, like love in the time of Corona. Like this is so dark to me. It's not fun. Why would I want to be reminded of reality? I'm not really a huge fan of shows being super referential of current events anyway, but especially now it's like, this is not, I'm not in the mood. I agree. It's like, yeah, I think that we all sort of felt that pit in our stomach when all of this started to happen, realizing how much TV and movies were going to be pulled from this for the years to come. It's like, can't we wait 10 years? Can we do like, let's look back in 10 years when we're all kind of ready to reflect? Because I remember September 11th happening and thinking to myself, like, there's never going to be movies about this. Like, there could never be, like, if a movie happens about this, it's going to be, like, when I'm in my 40s. And then, like, three years later when a movie came out, I feel like that's when the, the pacing of things really changed in a major way. So, on August 4th, uh, the day after, a cop car pulls up to a fire that the fire department's already working on. Sheriff William D. Gore from the San Diego County Sheriff Department gets out of the car and takes in the scene. Let's uh, hear as he discovers what's going on there. 4109 to 4151. Well, the main house is pretty much destroyed. Luckily, the firefighters were able to stop it before it destroyed the garage, too. Does the arson investigator have any idea what happened? Accident, faulty wiring, maybe? You need to see this. Firefighters discovered this when they made entry. I mean, talk about burying the lead. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, this guy's, you know, they're doing a tour of this place, and then he ends with the dead body? Yeah, this is this is not making sense to me. Like, my headline would be, like, we're going to a dead body, but on the way, let me fill you in on the rest of the details. 
Right. And this guy, Giannatonio, is the name of the this detective. He's. I think we're going to hear from him at the press conference later. But, you know, he's. Uh, he doesn't know who this body belongs to. To me, I feel like, I mean, I'd like to give myself some credit for something I've never done before. I feel like I would I would be able to to narrow down who was involved here pretty fucking quickly. Like it's not like Uncle Jim had this like illustrious social life. Right. I do think that they would probably be able to pull this evidence that he has this one family that he's attached to at all times. Also, is her purse not in the living room? <laughs> um yeah, no, it definitely is. Maybe it was burnt in the fire. Right, right. So they are just kind of sticking on this arson thing as being potentially a bigger deal than the murder. And her her um, body, I will say, for like having gone through a fire, especially when we see how decayed Ethan is later, um, she kind of made it through the fire. I mean, they're straight up using this actress still with her eyes bulged out and some serious special mm-hmm. effects makeup. Right. Um, but yeah, so... Brett, the dad, is working on a construction site when he gets the call that Jim's house was burnt down and it's on the news. So he goes to his car and opens up the news on his iPad. It says, Breaking News Now, that's the website he goes to, has the headline, Bodies Found and Burned Home. He tries calling Tina, but she doesn't answer. So he leaves a message saying that he thinks something horrible happened at Jim's and to call her when he has a second. Um, And then we go to the San Diego Police Department. there's a press, uh, you know, press waiting there for a press conference. I just want to say that if this is anywhere close to what the San Diego Police Department looks like, I understand like what the money situation is like there because this building is massive. Mm-hmm. It is all marble. It's like definitely historical building. These are these buildings are to me a rarity and a gem in Southern California. Pasadena definitely has structures that looks like this. But I mean, this is when people say California lacks history, like the thing that you have to point to are like these smatterings of buildings that exist in certain cities. Downtown LA has it, San Diego for sure. But let's play this press conference. It's 4334 to 4543. Thank you for coming. On August 4th, deputies and fire personnel responded to a structure fire in the unincorporated community of Boulevard. They entered the structure and found a body inside. The victim has been identified as Christina Anderson, and it has been determined that Ms. Anderson had been murdered. Sheriff and arson investigators searched through the rubble of one of the burned buildings on the property and found the remains of a child. The child's identity has not been determined at this time. The suspect in this murder and arson has been identified as James Lee DiMaggio, the 40-year-old owner of the residence. Upon an extensive search of the property, bomb and arson investigators located a number of explosives, apparently homemade by DiMaggio, that had been set up to 24 hours prior to detonation. The location of Ms. Anderson's children, 16-year-old Hannah Anderson and 8-year-old Ethan Anderson is unknown. 
It is believed that one or both of the children have been abducted by DiMaggio, whose whereabouts are also unknown. An Amber Alert has been activated in the hopes that the children and DiMaggio can be located. DiMaggio is believed to be driving a blue Nissan Versa, California license plate 6WCU986. The San Diego County Sheriff's Office is going to be working in conjunction with Agent Frank McKinnon of the FBI, who will be heading up our search for DiMaggio and the children. Now, if you have any questions, I'd be happy to try and answer. Was there anyone else in the house? No one else in the house. Okay. Right. So I will say that, you know, upon re-examining this with like the lens of you and I talking about his sister, right? It's quite obvious that Jim is very mentally ill because he is, you know, pretty knee deep in his sort of mental decline, I would say. I mean, not only is he dangerous, he's very dangerous. He's been building weapons and and bombs for sport on his property. Like, he's much more thought out than I have even really, like, allowed it to, like, you know, penetrate my Mm -hmm. brain. So, um, right away, you know, we see... This is a, a really big case. Um, the public is eating it up. We see that I like that we get to see the Amber Alert being received by people. Like we see like a guy working late at his desk. We see like an an older couple waking up in bed and like getting this Amber Alert, which yeah, I thought way, that was clever. Yeah, this is the most peaceful Amber Alert I've ever seen because the way mine sound on my phone. Oh, my God. You could wake the dead with an Amber Alert. Yeah, the one guy did have his phone flashing the flashlight, which I appreciated. Yeah, no, I mean, I would love it if I just had a little flashlight flash um, as opposed to like the (laughs) bad noise. It's that bad noise. So um, August 5th, two days later, uh, we see a printer printing out a missing persons flyer with Hannah, Ethan and Jim on it. And it's um, Brett arriving to the police station holding a box. Tina's parents are there and her mom is pissed. Jim was his friend. None of this would have happened if Brett had been there. And this was, I think, you know, the moment that really stuck with me. Not just because, like, of course you would feel that way. Yeah. Right? But also at the same time, that's a way that a lot of people feel, but they never indulge themselves in. Yeah, I I got her in this scene. I was like, no, I get it because your, you know, your daughter's husband has been out of town for months and has allowed his buddy to have this much access to the kids. I get why she would come out of this like really fucking pissed and her daughter has just died. Yeah, I think that most people have this like politeness gene though that takes over. Yeah. Where they're not right. going to call someone out like that. Because if you look at a lot of these like classic cases, like Scott Peterson, when he, you know, allegedly, because uh, like I, ha- I have to say, I recently watched, um, I'm still finishing it up, an ID series, I think, about it's a documentary where they sort of poke holes in the fact that like Scott Peterson allegedly had this, you know, rock solid case against him. Um, and they're sort of like, it actually wasn't rock solid. It's like people came to that conclusion. And hmm. because he had a mistress, it looked really bad. But interesting. 
it is interesting, right? Because um, there's a lot of cases that I feel like don't deserve new eyes. And I would consider that to be one of them. And I was like, Jesus, if this one isn't rock solid, then I don't know what to, what to say. But um, even even in that case, like, you know, the family, the Rokas, uh, Lacey's family, they were so um, gracious with Scott. And I would say that they defended him. I mean, basically until they had what was considered to be a confession from him. Yeah. So Detective McKinnon uh, comes out and introduces himself to Brett. And he asks him if they can have a word in private. And Tina's parents look on in horror as if they know that whatever Brett's about to hear is going to be major. Let's play 4650 to 4819. You'll have to excuse my in-laws. Things haven't exactly been the best between us lately. I need to tell you something, and it's going to be very painful. What is it? We're still waiting on a dental match, but it's almost certain that the second body found in the house was Ethan. uh, the, The press conference, the guy... The detective, he said he didn't know, right? I I know. But our medical examiner is pretty certain that the dental records will confirm it. I'm sorry. (laughs) I don't I don't understand this. Jim was my friend, he was our friend. I just I just asked him to watch out for the family while I was gone. He'd check in once in a while. Why would he do this? We found a box in his house full of 8 by 10 glossies of Hannah, printed from various websites, social media, that sort of thing. A lot of the photos could be considered a little suggestive. Oh, God. I'm going to bring your daughter back to you. I feel that in my heart, and you have my word. All right. Very important promise he just made. Yeah. Um, this, yeah. This whole scene just kind of had me, like, confused, first of all, why he would tell him that his eight-year-old son was murdered, like, in the middle of a crowded room. Like, in, like he's, like, standing up between a bookshelf. Right. Like, don't they have a private room that they can go to? For this, you know, I don't envy people who have to deliver news like this because there's always yeah. going to be notes on how it could have been done better, right? I mean, you're definitely correct. Like, I, you know, like there's some news that it just it doesn't matter where or how or why you tell someone the way that you do. Like, some would argue it would have been nice if they could have told him that in front of Tina's parents so that he had someone to turn to and hug, but. My most interesting takeaway from this is that, like, you know, so we tell men or society tells men that it's not manly to cry, right? It's embarrassing. But the only thing to me more embarrassing than crying (laughs) is, like, when you're so not used to crying that you're bad at crying, Right. (laughs) And that might be this actor, but it really does seem like he's a man who does not allow himself to feel like big boy emotions. Mm -hmm. And he's experiencing probably one of the saddest pieces of news you could ever be told in your life. Maybe the saddest, right? Yeah. And this actor 
acting through it. It's either brilliant or it's his downfall. This, the way that he cries is so uncomfortable. It's like he's actively fighting it and also was like, what is this wet stuff on my face? Yeah, I did get that sense as well. I mean, I I also wasn't sure how to take it. I'm not convinced that maybe this is the most profound performance I've ever seen on Lifetime. But I did feel for this discomfort and this disbelief. That was something I did definitely feel like had the ring of truth is just like he instantly goes to this disbelief of like, this was my friend. How could he do this? Like, there's no way that your mind can be ready for that kind of information. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. And I will say another sort of like pro Hannah thing here is that even though this man was like perving on her and had eight by 10 glossies, which is fucking psychotic. Like, hello, who's working at Kinko's? Can someone fucking step up about this man who's printing out these various pictures of this team? That girl? was wild to me. Like, why aren't these just on like printer paper? Yeah. Cut out small pictures. Like we're saying he's, he really has to go to Staples and get this stuff like blown up and on a glossy yeah he's and nobody is raising an eyebrow yeah he spent six bucks probably to have that printed out and you know it's uh i would say it's like pro hannah and that this is all stuff that's pulled from social media almost you know definitively not meant just for him no yeah but i think the public caught wind that he had suggestive photos of her And they assumed that maybe they were some sort of like intimate photos that she had passed on to him. Yeah. So we go to uh, this roadside diner in Elko County, Nevada. Oh, I wanted to point something out. Sorry, from the press conference. I looked up what it meant that um, this is supposedly a unincorporated community because I had never heard of that. So in law, an unincorporated area is a region of land that is not governed by a local municipal corporation, simply an unincorporated community and is a settlement that is not governed by its own local municipal corporation, but rather is administered as a part of a larger administrative division, such as a township, parish, borough, community, city, canton, state, providence, or country. So I'm guessing like they're just saying that this is like it exists outside of a county so that's sort of why it's going to the san diego police and the fbi or i don't i'm not really sure on that but they they hammer that home a couple times and i've never heard of where they are i i've heard of an unincorporated community but yeah that that is true that this would go straight to the fbi is like a little bit odd yeah maybe maybe simply because of like it's you know, the nature of, of a child being kidnapped, but yeah. Okay. So I found a list of the pros and cons of living in an unincorporated town. So there are fewer regular uh, pro is there's fewer regulations that you must follow Two, you have an option to start farming or homesteading three. It gives you an opportunity to start living off the grid. That's interesting. Um, four, you can get off municipal lines for needed services. Five, most of your neighbors were born and raised where they live. Six, it's a way for you to get back in touch with nature. So I get it. I get what they're saying. And then a list of cons is one, you don't have local police, fire, or ambulance support near your home. Two, you'll pay more for emergency services than you do uh, receive them. Three, the school bus might not visit your home. Four, there's less road maintenance that occurs in unincorporated areas. 
Five, you may pay higher insurance premiums for your property. Six, if you commute to work, you will be driving further. Zoning issues, your internet and TV access may have limitations. There might be a reason why the city doesn't want to annex a certain area. Your tax assessments. I mean, there's a lot of cons, but I think that this makes total sense for where Jim would live. Yeah, it does. I mean, it's making sense that this is probably a preferable area to commit arson, a double murder, and an abduction. For sure, for sure. So, and why, you know, I mean, this man is fine going to the woods. That's one of the things uh, Brett later says about him is that Jim likes isolation. Yeah, which checks out. So we go to this, you know, roadside diner and Jim is trying to wake up Hannah by rubbing his hand on her face, but she doesn't move. So he decides to leave her in the car and go inside by himself. And he's checking out some pastries when a cop car pulls up and things get very tense right away. He's thinking, oh, my God. But don't worry. These are the most fucking incompetent cops. (laughs) It's actually infuriating. This this was a genuinely suspenseful moment. Yeah, scene. I did give them some credit for some suspense here, but it is then ultimately just an eye roll that these are like the most incompetent cops in all of North America. And it's like it's literally like this is the sort of thing that happens in nightmares for me. Yeah, which is like I am so close, and like this is one of my last opportunities to get out of something before things are just like it's too far gone. And this is like the idea of this happening and actually being in Hannah's position where you're 16, like you're so desperate to have anyone intervene. And the only people who are paid by the law, by the fucking government to make sure that shit like this doesn't happen to you are checked out. Like truly, this is a major fuck the police moment for me. This was like a suspense moment too, when she's crawling on the ground and we get a little POV moment of her crawling in the dirt, trying to get to these incompetent, cops and then ultimately you know jim gets away with scooping her up and like dragging her back to the car so there's like the only reason why i want to sit in this moment for a little bit is that the owner of this coffee shop is so obnoxious and like (laughs) his sort of like living in his own narrative actually like (laughs) is the biggest detriment and it made me just like think about the times I've been not Jim in these ways, but like been someone who very much needed to get out of the way of someone who like handles her business like this. Mm-hmm. And also been someone who, you know, you never know if like you're just vi- like narrowly missing something like this. You never know that like, you know, the last person you gave change to is has a fugitive in their car. Right. right. And we've all probably been in that situation where we, narrowly avoided like being sex trafficked or you know have dealt with someone who's a, has a warrant out for a major crime and don't even realize it and we'll never know we just move on with our lives not knowing but you know the cops take their complimentary coffee and they head back out and the owner looks over at jim who's just like you know jim is just clocked that he's on the front page of the newspaper and it's his army yeah. dangerous and like one third of the page is the number to call if you've seen him anywhere yeah. and i will say that you know if you own a coffee shop you probably are so used to just picking up the papers putting them in the thing every day and like moving on with your life yeah that you don't really take in what's going on on the front page so it's viable that the owner doesn't know what's going on right but he says to him, you help me and I'll help you. 
And Jim's like, what? And he's like, what can I get for you? Which is such an interesting way to introduce the idea of like, right. can you place your fucking order? So yeah. he places down a couple power bars and a, and a pre-made sandwich. And we see Hannah's waking up and she sees the cops. Okay. She's in the front seat and she can't muster any strength. So she whispers, help, help. But like probably not even loudly enough for someone else in the car to have heard it. And it's not her fault. She's ambient out. I mean, this girl's still really fucked up. The world is mm-hmm. blurry. We get this sort of like boozy lens that she's seeing things through. And the coffee shop guy is chatting up Jim. And he's like, okay, well, if you're going hiking, I prefer a candy bar over some like dried fruit any day. I mean, come on. Like, and this guy's just like having nonsense dialogue. And right. so like, Anytime I see something like this, it makes me cringe thinking about how unconscious unconscious I can be as a person. And I think we all can be. Oh, I I have to agree. This obnoxious coffee shop clerk was the most relatable person to me in this movie. I just, I'm like not a visual person at all. And this did just remind me of how often I can just be so completely fucking like unaware of my surroundings that a man could be standing next to his wanted poster and it doesn't right. even like hit my corneas right like that's not that's not hitting my eyes i could be looking directly at it and see nothing i know and i have so many friends who are so not oriented that way and they'd be like molly are you fucking serious like how did you not realize that this guy is on the newspaper right next to him and i just my mind doesn't work like that i i truly I don't know where it comes from. I don't know if it's an ADHD thing. I don't know if it's like an anxiety thing. I'm just like an auditory person. So I get all my information from sound and I feel like I could be looking like I can never, I'm that bitch who can never find anything. Like I could be looking directly at my AirPods and be like, where the fuck are my AirPods? Like I just doesn't, everything is an I spy book to me. It's always where's Waldo. I dude, I found out I had ADHD like two years ago. And I'm still figuring out all of the ways it's like I've it's been an expense of mine Mm -hmm. my whole life. Like and it's like it's heartbreaking, truly, to like look back and think like, oh, my God, Molly, the reason why you didn't figure that out was because you were missing like this, this and this context clue, which like by design isn't going to be on your radar. Yeah, I'm actually in that process right now, like as a 23 year old with therapy research, blah, 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 realizing that I have ADHD and dealing with that. And now looking back like, oh, maybe that's why I was always struggling in school. Maybe that's why I didn't finish college. Like all these things that you just think, oh, I fucked up. And then looking back and realizing, no, I was like fully missing something. Yeah. Like I think if the cops came in and told me that this happened, I would be more likely to remember what this man's change was and what line in the maroon song maroon five song that was playing on the speakers of the coffee shop like was was being said as i gave him that change oh 100 percent. more than I mean, like this is what he was wearing today even like adhd symptoms aside i'm just living in my own reality <laughs> like just not quite touching down to earth Yeah. A lot of the time. And especially if I'm working like a desk job or like a clerk cashier situation, you have to go somewhere else in your mind to fucking get through that day. Like that's a long ass day of like giving people change. 
Totally. So yeah, I'm on cloud nine, like I'm in outer space. And, you know, that's kind of why I think I kind of love this coffee shop guy because he is showing up for a guy that works at what seems to be a pretty sleepy spot. I mean, it's by pure happenstance that he came into this coffee shop. This guy probably does not see people coming and going all the time. And in fact, a lot of it is probably people who are driving through, right? So he just probably doesn't really have regulars and all of that. And he shows up and he has a chipper attitude every day. You know, he's being like, you know, very conversational with Jim for no particular reason. But for some reason, Jim Jim's total here is now 1885 for two power bars and a sandwich. Riddle me that. I was so confused. I was so confused. I was like, wait, what else is he is he buying chains? I was like, is he picking up other suspicious, like suspicious things? I would have gotten a latte or something. Yeah, I'm confused as to how much this power bar. Like, is this a seven dollar granola bar? I mean, maybe it's in that isolated of a place where he can get away with that highway robbery of like five bucks a power bar. Yeah, I was completely lost. I just wasn't sure if I was missing something like he was buying a giant stack of magazines and there was just something I wasn't seeing. So this guy, like, you know, he's he he asked for the money. Jim gives him a 50. And this man is just like dialoguing it out as he's like, oh, sorry, you know, the cash register. I got to talk to the manager about that, you know, blah, blah, blah. He's fully just dialoguing in a way that honestly would probably drive me nuts in real life, but that I also yeah. would probably be guilty of. So yeah. Hannah's like getting, you know, she's starting to like get out of the car at this point. And she's basically army crawling towards the cops trying to get out of there. But someone steps in front of her. And unfortunately, it is Jim. And he's like, what do you think you're doing? You could have gotten hurt. And his voice is all distorted and weird. It sounded like almost like if Kermit's like balls dropped or something. <laughs> No, like it was like a very that's a very visceral description yeah because it was like it was oddly deep but it was almost like comedically long like his voice sounded long i don't know i see i see that they're trying to establish that she's on drugs it just seemed really like not quite it this is truly a girl though who's probably never had a drink in her life because this man has hit her in a new way So we put her back into the car and these two fucking useless cops haven't even looked up like motherfuckers. What is wrong with you? So he's like, you know, there must be someone out there looking for us because, you know, this is truly meant to be meaning like he's talking like the angels, not the FBI. (laughs) He's like, there's angels on our side. So he tightens up her handcuffs and drives off. And then we pan over a river in a beautiful suburban area. We hear that there's a Fox News alert. A massive manhunt is still going on this morning for this man, a suspected killer, James Lee DiMaggio, and two children he may have abducted, Hannah and Ethan Anderson, two kids of uh, the two kids of Christina, who was found dead in Jim's scorched home. The father of the children joins them. We see that um, Detective McKinney is watching this in his hotel uh, in his uh, bedroom at home as he's packing up some luggage. So let's play this scene. Um, I do want to point out though, in advance that I wish they could have like announced sooner that Ethan was probably not with them because I feel like if I saw an Amber alert and if it was a 16 year old and an eight year old, my eyes would be peeled for the eight year olds. Yeah. 
And there was, probably, I thought that was odd. Yeah. There was probably people that saw them that didn't, weren't looking for like a young blonde girl and an older man that could easily be her father. Um, yeah. But yeah, so let's play this scene 5230 to 5357. A massive manhunt is still going on this morning for this man. Suspected killer James Lee DiMaggio and two children he may have abducted, Hannah and Ethan Anderson. The two children of Christina Anderson, who was found dead in DiMaggio's scorched California home. At this hour, an Amber Alert is still in effect for 16-year-old Hannah and 8-year-old Ethan. Joining me now is the father of these two missing children, Brett Anderson. Good morning to you, sir. Good morning. As a parent, as a human being, I can't imagine the pain you must be going through. You've lost your wife, you don't know what's happened to your two children, and you weren't there to really know the details. Tell me, what do you think happened on Saturday? All I know is that he killed my wife, most likely my son, just waiting on the DNA test, and he took my daughter. If Jim DiMaggio is listening, is there anything you would like to say to him? Uh, tell him the damage has been done. Get your head together and let my daughter go. Let her come home to me. You're leaving. They got several sightings up in Nevada. You know, I just keep imagining this was Becca, you know? They found large trash bags in the attic of this guy's garage. Receipts, boxes of handcuffs. Uh, apparently he's been planning this for weeks. Oh my God. I promised her father I'd get her back, Nick. So he hugs his wife and he just sort of stares off contemplating all of the things he's up against. And I can't move past the fact that they've cast someone who looks like she's 21 to be this man's wife. And she, I mean, she looks so young. It looks like they could have been in their own Hannah Jim situation. <laughs> because Maybe they were trying to establish that he was a really young agent. He, I mean, he looks so much older than her, but I could see that as being them trying to, like, age him down. This actor is like, no, if they wanted to age him down, they could have started in a lot of other places. Yeah. But, like, the wrong way to age someone down is to, like, cast an age-inappropriate wife. Like, yeah. he, and, like, you know, props to this actress, because if she is supposed to be playing a 30-something-year-old woman or whatever, um, they you know, she looks great. She looks like she's literally 21 years old, maybe even younger. And, um, you know, he, he is a man who has a distinguished look. Who's this actor? Let me see who this actor is. So he is, a uh, Jay Pickett is the name of this guy. And he, uh, actor, writer, producer, born in 1961. This man is a year older than my mother. Uh, he, <coughs> it's not Corona. He does a lot of uh, TV movies, definitely. Um, big General Hospital guy, Port Charles, Days of Our Lives. So he's a soap guy. 
Um, and I want to. He's handsome. He has soap star looks. He definitely is handsome. I definitely buy him as like the established detective. Let me see who his wife is played by. Because I just, I'm either obsessed with this actress or just like very confused. Let me see. So she did Gilmore's, Gilmore Girls. She was a big Gilmore Girls person. She might have come in through Luke, if I'm being honest. That's so crazy. How did I not recognize her? So she played, um, she was in an episode called Last Week Fights, This Week Tights, and she played Chrissy. And then she was also in a Gilmore Girls Year in the Life, and she played someone called 38-Year-Old Woman. Okay, so yeah, she's not, what's the character's name? Uh, it's called 38-Year-Old Woman. I mean, the, the character in the Hannah Anderson movie. Oh, um, her name is uh, Nicole McKinnon. She doesn't even have an IMDb picture. Yeah, she's not she's not recognizable to me. But she does look younger than him. Honestly, it does seem a little bit and I don't want to throw her under the bus. It does seem like a favor, maybe because she only has two credits, this movie and then some a smattering of Gilmore Girls appearances like two so she's you're thinking she's probably just scott patterson's friend potentially she could have come in on a wreck i mean let me see who wrote this movie too i want to know who the writers were jeffrey schneck he is a writer from i mean a lot of tv movies a lot i mean holy shit you want to talk about working in this town bitch this man has written like five movies a year since 2001. Like 2008 oh, this- is, was crazy for him. Okay, so wait, you're exactly right because this woman is Scott Patterson's wife. Okay, okay, that makes sense. That makes sense. It was also a story by Peter Sullivan. This man is also incredibly employed. Okay, this is the amount of movies he did. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. He did eighteen movies in two thousand nine. Wow. Okay, work boy. Like you fucking better get it, dude. And Nothing then the but respect. Screenplay was by Hans Wasserberger. And Hans Wasserberger does have a more conservative resume, but he has worked so consistently. He did one movie, Her Fatal Flaw, in 2006. Things turned around for him in 2012. He did two Christmas movies that year. And then since, you know, two in 2013, two in 2014, five movies in 2015. I mean, this man is doing well. This is this is crazy. Like, you never see someone have credits like that unless they're involved with Lifetime. Could be working at that rate. Yes, like, like, what was it? What did I say? 10 movies in a year? That's fucking nuts, dude. So the actress, yeah, the actress plays wife. That's great that that's his wife. I love that he got her in there. So we go to a- She she is like, well, she is like age appropriate, I'm seeing now. So I think she just happens to be very beautiful and aging nicely. If my husband was like a regular soap actor and got me like a part once every- seven years or something i would be getting facials all the time drinking water going to soul cycle i'd be on top of that 
Scott Patterson is 60. I know. It's crazy. He's aging pretty well as well. It's crazy. They're, they're, these people are older than my mom. That's some like, li- yeah, m- mine as well. That's some lifetime Gilmore money. For real. For With real. With the skincare. <clears throat> I want that lotion. Yeah. Gilmore Girls probably does crazy in repeats. Oh, for sure. For sure. And they rebooted. They're I mean, not- I'm sure he's, he's doing fine. So we go to this candlelight vigil that's happening and people are wearing t-shirts with Hannah's face on them. And the press is getting more and more voracious. And Brett has already learned how to speak to them at this point. And he makes a speech saying that he can't say how much it means to all of them to see all these people out there supporting tonight. But each one of them is a member of this family. Hopefully not in a family crush way, though. I will. (laughs) Yeah, maybe that's his problem to begin with. Not everybody needs to be a part of your family. That's huge, actually. That's a boundary I learned late in life, is that a lot of times when people say, like, you're, like, family to us, it's just to manipulate you. Yeah, and it's just not necessary. Like, not everybody has to be that involved in your intimate private life. Well, it's, like, never for – it's, like, it's never for them. It's always for you, I feel, that when people say that. Either they're very earnest and they mean it, but nine times out of ten, when someone says, like, you're, like, family to me, it's either to, like, shut you up and, like, just make you feel like, okay, I have, I'm not, I don't need to keep explaining myself. I guess I'm, like, family to them, right? Or it's, like, a, just a, a subtle manipulation to sort of... Like, they're going to ask you for a big favor later. Totally. Or, like, they're taking advantage of you and they don't want you to suspect anything. Yeah. So... You know, he makes a speech, blah, blah, blah. They're all family. Um, And he says he knows Hannah isn't here, but he knows that all of them agree that they will see her smiling face soon. And he says to his beautiful wife and son, he will love them forever and he'll see them in heaven someday soon. Which I would never say, like, you'll definitely be seeing me in heaven. (laughs) I'm not confident enough to pull that off. No, I would say me neither, but I could see him leaning on that in this time of need. No, I would be like, I hope we meet in heaven someday soon. You know? Yeah. Not like, yeah, yeah you'll see me there. I just feel like, like when you get overly confident about being in heaven. Like he's fairly certain his eight-year-old son made it up there, but you can't even really be sure about your wife. True, true. And definitely... Even if you think that about yourself, you got to be humble about that. You got to keep that under wraps. Like, you know, <laughs> you're still waiting on permission to enter. So <laughs> Hannah's on the Today Show. We go back to that sort of thread and it says, next thing you know, you're in Idaho. So Hannah finally wakes up in her car and she realizes in the car and she realizes she's still handcuffed. And she's just like, where's my mom? Where's Ethan? And he says, don't worry about it. They're back at the house. And she's like, are they okay? And he goes, yep, they're tied up. And interesting double meaning there. That the actor, maybe the way he threw it away, made it more interesting. Because he's like, they, you know, he said they're tied up, which I'm sure means literally. But the way he threw the line away, it seems almost like is he saying like they're, you know, they're preoccupied. They're otherwise right. engaged. They're tied up. So well, also, how is this supposed to make her feel better? The idea that her mother and brother are, have been tied up in a basement for days. Oh, 100%. And like, by the way, one thing we never talk about in these movies, which I recently dialed into um, 
for a movie we just did called Sins and Seduction, where this guy like basically stalks this woman and then like Oh, I've so seen that movie. You haven't posted the episode yet, have you? No, it comes out I think it's the episode that comes out tomorrow, actually. I'm gonna eat that up. I I did watch that movie. And like the guy takes these two people that have been passed out for at least, you know, she's been passed out for a couple days. He's been passed out for at least 24 hours. And he like takes their passed out bodies and brings them to a church to a demented yeah. wedding. And I said yeah. to my friend, I was like, they are covered in their own piss and shit, like for sure. At this point, like you don't just pass. You're not just like passed out for three days. And your body's not, like, having natural situations. That's such a good point and just so simply nasty, but... Oh, well, I think about that a lot. Because whenever, you know, you think about a situation in which maybe you're kidnapped or you're shoved in a hole for several days, I just think about how much pee I would have on myself. No, and you know nasty-ass Uncle Jim is not wiping her down. Oh, for sure. I mean, especially these two are abandoned, right? So Yeah. Anyway, um, she's like, where are we? And he says, someplace safe. So we see that they're in that very tree-ish woods that we came up on in the beginning, this very lush forest. And they pass a sign that says, river of no return, wilderness. So they drive into this brush area, and he uncuffs her. And she's so freaked out. And it's like, you know, again, this is another moment where it's just like difficult to read what the actress is playing. Um, And she he pulls out these two huge backpacks from the trunk and she's like, what are you doing? And he says that the lake is a couple days hike into the forest and they'll hide the car. And she's like, why? And he says, it's just you and me now. We don't need anyone else. Go find some branches to cover the car. The thicker, the better. So, like, magically, she, like, goes out to this, like, clearing area, and magically, there are, like, all of these perfectly sized and cut branches on the ground, and she starts collecting them, and you see her, like, sprint a little bit, and you are realizing, like, maybe she might be trying to make a break for it, but then you hear the pop of a gun. She turns Mm -hmm. around, it's Jim, and he's like, listen, we need to get one thing clear. What's happening right now? Okay, this is serious. We need each other. This is a team situation, and I'm feeling like you're not a part of the team. And at Mm -hmm. this point, if she disobeys him again, he's going to have no choice but to put a bullet in her head. And it's not what he wants, but if he has to, he will. So, like, I, you know, wrote in my notes here, like, imagine wanting to live that much. Because personally, like, just being on an outsider situation, I look at that and I'm like, I would want to just die then. Like, I wouldn't have hopes of coming home. and if I came home to whatever the situation was, it probably wouldn't be better for me. So I would be like, kill me, Jim. Right. But like in reality, when you are in any sort of life threatening situation, it is incredible how bad like your, your human instinct overrides anything that you as a person would presume about yourself like right yeah the will to live. Yeah. The will to live survival. It's so there. Like, any like I've had a couple close calls with fires in my area and like the way I go into action it's like as if I really want to live like it's as if I really like am not fine just dying in a fire like it it always shocks me because on paper and like honestly conversationally I would think I'm the type of person that would be like that's fine just take me out you know 
Um, but I, you know, I guess I have a will to live. It's interesting. Yeah, it is kind of like a lesson moment when you get into a life or death situation and you realize, oh, potentially I do want to actually live. Yeah, and then there'll be like a month where like I'm really like vocal about it. Like, you know, I'm just happy to have my life, man. Like I'm just happy to be alive, which is like so not me to say something like that, but I mean it. So on the Today Show, the host is like, well, then you went on this hike on a terrain that's known for being rough. What was that like? So then we cut to Hannah. You know, she's saying that it's really rocky and hard to get your footing up there. You fall a lot. He made her carry two 50-pound backpacks. And we see that she's having a hard time managing these packs. And I I guess, like, my only note on backpack management in this scene, not saying that I could ever carry 100 pounds, is that I wish that she had put one on her front, like, dedicated one on her front where she had put her arms through the straps and one on her back. Right. Watching her struggle to like freehand this other 50 pound backpack is insane. And again, fuck this guy for what is her pun? Why is she being punished? Like, if he's supposed to be making her feel like this is the solid goal, right? Like, this is a great idea. We're going to go live our life together. The first thing to buy my false sense of confidence would be carrying this backpack so I don't have to do it, thinking that I'm going to have an easier life. Free of backpack carrying with my new 50-something-year-old husband. So, yeah, that was one thing, too, that I noticed in the the Ask FM is that everybody was asking her, like, oh, did he kidnap you because he was obsessed with you? Like, was it sexual? He was in love with you, all this stuff. And her answer was like, "Um, no, he kidnapped me because he wanted me to carry these backpacks for him into the woods. He needed somebody to carry shit for him. You know, that is such an interesting reminder and like thing to bring up right now. Right. Because it seems like as though she genuinely feels that this was not at all about him and her. This was about him needing someone to transport his stuff. He needed a mule. Yeah. And it might be true. Yeah. I mean, we just don't know, but I could see that. I mean, he's a demented guy. Yeah, I'm sure he probably was obsessed with her, but he also benefited from having another body to carry his beer. Yeah, he also does seem like kind of able-bodied, though. So it's like a little like demented to think that he's just putting her through this. Like, I feel like any sort of guys that this was done as like a Romeo and Juliet fucked up situation, right? I feel like any sort of guys that that's the case is like immediately pummeled by this backpack situation it's just unreal to me that he's trying to play romeo and is also making her lug 100 pounds and she has a previous knee injury from a Mm -hmm. a cheerleading thing and i know when she got back one of the main reasons why people questioned her is that she had one she had one knee brace that she had from a previous cheerleading injury and she was using it alternately on each leg so some people drew the conclusion that maybe she was faking her knee that (sighs) that she banged up because later on she's not really going to be able to walk much a lot of people thought that she was faking this knee injury and that this was just some like you know brace that was laying around and she was switching it out on whatever knee she wanted at the time when in reality i think she just had one knee brace and needed to keep whatever leg was more stable at the moment free. Cause you can't have two knee braces like that and, and really be and walk. Yeah. 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 I get it. I get that. That's funny to see 
that she's changing the knee brace from leg to leg. But can we just for a second give this teenage girl like the benefit of the doubt? I mean, that's like the main evidence that people who are dead set on not giving her the benefit of the doubt and find some sort of, you know, thing wrong with her story. I mean, it's almost like very like Amanda Knox, where it's like, yeah, you're oh, for sure taking this person who I mean, and before anyone clarifies that these are not at all the same thing, I agree. But mm-hmm. it's like taking something and, and taking a tiny little seed and being like, no, this is this is what's really going on here. And while those little details can matter in cases like this, this is just not the one. It's like you might as well just admit you don't know anything about a knee brace and how it works and the fact that you can't walk with two knee braces on. Yeah, and that you're a fucking misogynist who can't believe that a teenage girl could potentially have accidentally walked herself into this sort of situation where she had, you know, a false sense of confidence about who this person was. Yeah. So she's, you know, she takes a moment to open one of the backpacks while he's a little bit ahead of her and she sees the handcuffs in there. And he yells to her, they got to make camp that night before the storm hits. So let's play 59.52 to one hour, one minute and three seconds. Come on, we got to make camp before the storm hits. I don't want to do this anymore. Oh, what do you think I brought you out here for? You're young, you're athletic, you can do it. Club Jim, please. Uh, it'll flatten out once we get around this bend. <laughs> Hannah! Hannah! You all right? Huh? Huh? You think you can? Hang on, hang on, hang on. You think you can stand? Huh? Oh, oh, my knee. Okay, okay, it really okay, hurts. Okay, 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 okay. Here, here. All right, let me help you. All right, all right. Let's just reach out. Let me help you there. Okay. Mm. Let me help you. Oh, oh. I need a doctor, no, please. No, 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 no. Here, here, let me help you. Listen, I promise we'll get this thing wrapped once we make camp, okay? But right now, we just got to keep moving, all right? Just hang on a second. Can you stand for two seconds? All right, nice and easy, nice and easy. Come on, come on. In all of that time, was there ever a moment where you thought, maybe I can make a run for it, maybe I can escape? Yeah, a lot, but he had a gun and threatened to kill me or anyone else who tried to help. Okay, so that scene, I think it's pretty obvious, the way that he just laid that out, that she's there to be a mule, right? Yeah. That looked painful, by the way. I would have been in I would have been in so many of those ditches. That's like that would be a nightmare for me to negotiate oh, absolutely. like that. I'm way too clumsy. So they set up this little two-person tent in the woods, and it's dark now, and they have a fire going. And Jim gets out of the tent to take a piss on the fire. And that's when Hannah finds herself alone with the gun. And when Jim is done peeing, he turns around to see her pointing the gun right at him. And she says, it's over. Whatever it is you think this whole thing is, it's over and I'm going home. And he's like, what, are you going to shoot me? She's like, yeah, I will if I have to. And he tells her, go ahead. But she clearly can't bring herself to do it. And he's like, oh, you want to play again? Five and five and six, remember? And she says, listen, okay, this gun is fully loaded. And he's like, go for it then. Shoot me. You can do anything you want to. And he even throws her the car key and he says, you can go drive to Tennessee. There's even more than enough gas money. Kill me if you want to. And she says she can't. So he takes the gun from her and then he socks her in the stomach in a way that looks so painful. One thing they never touch on in this movie, and I don't think the status of this was ever revealed. Like they did find some used condoms in their camp. Which made a lot of people think that that's what 
sort of hinted towards this being a consensual relationship. But like, I actually think that it's more likely that he sexually assaulted her repeatedly and that the reason why they don't address it is because she doesn't want that out there. Yeah, 100%. I mean, I do, even from the Ask FM where people were asking her, she said, I can't talk about that. I can't address that. I do think, yeah, the MO of a guy like this, I'm sure he was sexually assaulting her. I respect that that's not something that they're discussing or putting in this movie. Just out of respect for this young girl who was victim, like, I appreciate that. Yeah, I I think also, like, a lot of times when that gets brought up, like, say, in the case of Elizabeth Smart, right? Like, they had to bring the kidnappers to trial. And so, therefore, that information was relevant to the case, whereas here, the guy's dead, so it's not necessarily relevant for that to get out. It would literally just be, you know, fuel to sort of the fire of, like, the bad will people have towards him. So, Brett is working on something with a map when Tina's mom comes in, and it's, like, late at night, he's at the kitchen table, and she's like, you really should eat something. And he says, no, I'm not doing any good if I pass out from... She's like, oh, you're not doing any good if you pass out from hunger or exhaustion. He hasn't slept in days, and it says he's trying to funnel some clips to McKinnon. Uh, apparently, Jim's a wilderness guy, and he likes the middle of nowhere, so that narrows it down to just about 20,000 square miles. She's like, well, what if we don't find her? You know, like, and, you know, he says, no. McKinnon promised me. He looked me in the eyes and said that they're going to find her. But you were right. I never should have left. And this is where Tina's mom, you know, kind of, She's she realizes that she got ahead of herself at the police station. She says that that was all just emotion. She knows he was a good father, tells him to eat up and she'll see him in the morning. Now, this is interesting because she does say he was a good father, but she doesn't say he was a good husband. And I think that that's an important distinction. Yes, because. Yeah, absolutely. Their marriage was seemingly crumbling. It was in a bad place. And um, yeah. So I think it's like nice that they sort of acknowledge it that way. So this is where things get spicy and they meet the horseback riders. Hannah is sleeping when she hears their voices and she starts to walk toward them, but her knee is busted. So she's like, you know, making it down the hill a little bit like she's an elderly lady. She's definitely can't put weight on that leg. 105.24 to 107.21. Keep quiet or I'll have to kill them. Is that what you want? No. All right, well, you let me do the talking. Hey there, nice day for a ride. Yeah, a little bit warm, but we're okay. Is your daughter? Yep, spending some quality time with my baby girl. They grow up so fast, huh? Where are y'all headed? You know you're in one of the most godforsaken places on God's green earth. And your baby girl, she's dressed up like she's heading to a slumber party. <laughs> yeah, we're heading over to Moorhead Lake. Well, you know, if you're headed to the lake, you're heading the wrong direction. Moorhead's about five miles back that way. Where are you from? We hardly ever see anybody up here. Uh, Texas. Hmm. You don't have an accent. Well, no, no, actually, that's, that's not the first time I've heard that. Right, sweetie? 
Yeah. <laughs> anyway, morning to you. We didn't catch your names. Dan and Laura. Huh. Well, Dan and Laura, it's a pleasure to meet you two. I'm Mark, this is my wife Krista, and this here are the Youngs, Mike and Mary. Hi. Nice to meet you. Have a nice day. Dan, I'd be uh, careful with that tent. Mm. That tree there would be a pretty good lightning rod in a storm. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, sir, for the warning. Uh, we'll heed that. Thank you. Take care mm -hmm. now. All right, so these people are great. Did you see the, um, the clip of the Real Today show? I did not. These people are like this in real life. Like, they are fully, like... In the movie, these people are all in like Western gear, right? Like the right. the guy even has one of them even has like a perfectly tied neckerchief around or neckerchief or whatever, but it's not like a bandana. Like this is a, I mean, this is regalia of some type. It's cowboy shit. True. Yeah, I dug this look. I did. And these people are, you know, they're they're playing a, uh, you know, a good offense here. They're coming in and they are, you know, they want to know names. They've got all the right questions. They're commenting on their regional accent. They're making notes about their clothing. I mean, basically, these people are letting you know that they're observing everything about you. And yeah. it's interesting because I can't blame Hannah for not saying anything but the idea that he could potentially kill four people on horseback is it's a little like i mean that's when you know we're in crazy town because mm -hmm. what are you even going to do with the horses yeah i mean i i felt for her ultimately i wish oh she had course. done something and in her position i don't honestly know what i would do i would totally i would totally have stockholm syndrome at that point yeah yeah, I don't know. I appreciated these people, though. I I dug the the attention to detail with the costuming. This guy who's sort of, we find out later that he's like the ex-sheriff. His whole vibe is very effective and kind of giving us this hint that she's going to get free because this guy obviously knows something's up. I mean, this is mad suspicious. It is. It's like, it's very much, this is not a father-daughter duo that are out camping. It's simply not. These are well the way the he's land. ripping her arm in the scene too. Mhm. Mm yeah. It's very creepy. And like I like that you know, this is I mean, this is truly wilderness. Like this is mm -hmm. no man's land. It's almost lawless land, right? But they're letting you know like we live up here. This is our we're we're aware of what's going on here and like just so you know we know like we're clocking mm -hmm. everything about this. So Hannah keeps looking back at them. And um, then we transfer back to the anchor who's asking her if once they walked away, she felt defeated. Like maybe that was her one and only chance to get away. And we cut back to Hannah and Jim sitting around the fire that night. And Jim is drunk and says that he knows what Hannah was doing. He knows she was trying to signal to them and she denies it. And he throws his beer on the fire and he goes, don't you lie to me. And I was like, Jim, like, like, dude, don't waste your beer out of anger. Like you only have so much beer up here. It's a, it's a finite resource. You are going to run out of that beer. Let's not act like we're in throwing beer mode. <laughs> I mean, th this was just pointing to how far gone this guy is that he apparently was planning this abduction for weeks 
but all he packed was beer. He struggles to start the fire in a later scene. He doesn't know how to pitch a tent correctly to avoid lightning strikes. He just doesn't seem like he really knows how to camp. He I'm not sure where he got it got it in his head that he could keep himself and another person alive in the middle of the woods for an extended period of time with nothing but beer and a single tent. I mean, the lightest thing he could have packed is power bars. Like he could have fully hit up a local Costco, gotten a couple cases of power bars, and they'd be in a different situation. And I can understand, okay, this man is, he's an alcoholic. He is trying to get to like a final destination. Canned beer seems like something you would hold on to for a celebration. If I was him, I probably would have packed like if I was thinking in his mind, right, I'm going out to the woods to live by myself. I probably would have packed like some sort of like yeast or bread so I could make my own moonshine. Yeah. Or even just like a handle of some hard liquor because it's going to hit harder with less. But he also has to think about like, how am I going to get this in the future? Because this is not sustainable. And if I'm him, I don't want to be going through the DTs out in a random remote cabin. So the lack of foresight is just staggering here. It is, especially for someone who built his own goddamn bombs. (laughs) Exactly. So she's like, you know, he's like, do you not think I hurt too? Do you think I don't have pain? I've spent my whole life in pain. I'm finally getting away from it, which is interesting. And we're going to find out more about his life, but just a little bit. And he's like, I need to think, 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 think. And he's talking to himself in that way that you officially know a person is is leaving the building, right? Right. And he holds up his gun to Hannah and he asks her why she wants to ruin this for them. And she tells him that it's because she's scared. And he dives down onto her lap because like he has this moment where he's like, oh, but I can't let this little girl be scared. Like I'm, you know, I'm supposed to be protecting her. So he gets down. He's like, everything's going to be okay. And he leans in for a kiss and she turns her cheek. And at that moment, he's like, why are you looking at me like that? I'm not a monster. Everything I've done is it's been for us. Don't you get that? Everything. I'll get to the, you know, we'll be at the lake tomorrow. She says to him, I'm starving. (laughs) So there's some major truth to that. And then we see McKinnon is working away in his hotel room when Detective Jernigan comes in. And says that they're going to go across the street for some bad sushi. And the guy playing Jernigan is like in a totally different movie. Like right. they may as well be there working on different cases. Because this guy sort of has a, uh, you know, there's like an airiness to him. Like he, it looks like he just came off of a great laugh with the other guys in the next room. Comes in smiling being like, we're going to go get some bad sushi. And like. Seems like they're going over there to get some tuna rolls and some beer or something. Like, he has this very light attitude. McKinnon asks him before he can go. He's like, no. McKinnon's like, I'm good. And he's like, wait, before you go, do you remember, like, what we heard about Jim's dad? And he's like, no, not exactly. And he goes, yeah, he broke into a 17-year-old girl's house as an adult. And he brought a sawed-off shotgun and threatened to kill her and her family. And... A jer- uh, what's his name? Jergenin is jer- wait. Jernigan is like, oh, like father, like son, huh? And McKinnon's like, mm, not exactly, because six years later he took off to the desert and killed himself, and that was eighteen years ago this week. He's had a feeling that he never planned on this being a round trip. He knows what they went up there to do, and they're running out of time. So that's actually something that I wish we got to spend more time on. Mm-hmm. 
Because that's very interesting that this is maybe like a, you know, destiny that he that it just naturally it's like this happened or that maybe he's planning this as some sort of, you know, closing the circle between him and his dad. Yeah, I read a little bit about this, too, with the fact that his dad also had, you know, committed some crimes against a young girl and this pattern. I mean, to me, it just spoke to, okay, we have a generational situation here that could explain why both him and his sister are deluded. Right. And then also when you find out that he's doing this on the anniversary of his father's suicide, we have also the trauma and the grief playing a role. Right. So do you think that he was going into the woods and ultimately planning to kill both of them? So, I mean, it certainly plays into why he has a uh, beer stash that is so... And no supplies. Right. It's like maybe maybe there is something there, right? But I, um, I mean, if I'm being honest with you, I don't really know. I want to ask you quickly, though, before we move on. Um, you, okay, so for me, like, I remember the Jean Bonnet case playing out in real time. That was, like, of my generation. That was, like, when I was growing up, that was a big case. What was your first big case in terms of, like, just you'll never forget it. It was, like, you know, it's essential to the fabric of your childhood. I think real time, I was not super engaged with true crime as like a child. I think Casey Anthony was the big one that I remember happening in real time, as well as sort of in hindsight, but a little bit in real time with Amanda Knox. Okay. That's a great And then Jodi Arias, I knew about as it was happening, but wasn't like super duper engaged. And then as an adult, getting super obsessed with that case. And then also Jean Benet in hindsight, finding out a lot about that case as an adult, but I guess Casey Anthony would be the one that I remember happening in real time. Yeah. Jody's unreal. I'm almost jealous that you got to experience Jody like that. I will never be done getting to the bottom of that entire everything about that. But yeah, so when we go to August 8th, five days later, Jim is fishing in the river trying to pull something together for them to eat. When the horseback gang comes back and Hannah runs right over to them, 111.13 to 113.05, this is where a lot of uh, solid looks are going to be exchanged. Well, hello again. Glad to see you found your way. Lake's not far from here. Everything okay, honey? You look a little spooked. She's she's just a little tired. I think we overdid it a little yesterday, you know? Is that it? You just a little tired? Yeah. A little girlish. Looking kind of rough. There you go. Maybe you two ought to think about heading out of here. There is a ranger station about two miles back up the trail here. But you know the area pretty good, huh? You used to be sheriff. No kidding. Sheriff, huh? I'm tired now. But, uh... Yep, we do head up this part about two, three times a year. We can take you to the ranger station if you want. Oh, yeah, that's really not necessary, but thanks. Might not be a bad idea. Your daughter's looking pretty bad. Oh, we're fine, really. You really don't know your way around these woods very well. Your daughter's dressed in her pajamas. And uh, you set your tent up like a lightning rod. 
And those boots you're wearing? Not exactly suited for this particular terrain. Now tell me, why are you really out here, Dan? It was my idea. It's kind of funny, actually. Last year, he picked and we went to Hollywood. This year, I said I wanted to go camping by the lake. I guess we're not really good at it. No, not really. Which way did you say the ranger station was? Back that way, about two miles. Guess we'll head there in a bit. Um, I think I'm going to stay out here a little bit longer. It's so peaceful, you know? What do you think, Dad? I, I can stay out here a little longer. If you hear a stegosaurus breathing, it's actually just this gigantic cat I have purring right here. Oh, no worries. He's such a good boy. You're so good. I love you. I'm cat sitting right now. For who? For a friend of mine whose house is getting um, tented. Ooh. Fumigated. I, uh, I'm allergic to cats, but I'm greatly enjoying myself nonetheless, although I am sneezing a lot. Okay, that's like actually, yeah, you rarely hear of a they come to you cat sitting situation. Yeah, because the house is getting. Of course. No, that totally um, makes she sense. Has to, yeah, so they're in a hotel and I have the cat in my house. Um, and it's worth the sneezing because she is like absolutely so precious. And she's, it took her like a day, but she's adjusted and she's like climbing into our laps now. It's very, it's very precious. Tell me about her. Give me the cat stats. Her name is Mew. She was named by an eight-year-old boy. I think he did a good job. Mm-hmm. Um, she is, I think, under a year old. She looks... I'm, like, not a cat person. I don't have a lot of cat experience. What's her coat like? She looks like a calico to me. Cutie cutie. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. And she's little. And she... It's so funny. Her 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 mom who dropped her off was like, oh yeah, she doesn't ever make noise, but she has been meowing a lot because of course she's like in this new environment, she's adjusting, but it's, I mean, it's very precious and she's been perfect. She's been eating out of her bowl and doing her business in the litter box and playing with the laser pointer. She gets it. Oh my God. The So I, I, do you know, I got a cat last Sunday. I've seen you post. Did you name this cat Pigeon? Yeah, Pidgey. I just got her last Sunday. It hasn't even been a full week. And I'm not going to lie to you. Um, my friend texted me today and was like, how's it going? And I'm like, honestly, the honest answer is it's been challenging. Like the last couple yeah. of days have been a little challenging. It's not even so much that she's really active and needs a lot of attention and doesn't really sleep. She's only seven months, so she's still like a ball of energy. Oh, yeah. But it's like, I'm also helping out my neighbor who's in a wheelchair. Her husband's like in the hospital right now. So I'm like helping her out. And Pigeon tries to eat the wires on my computer. And also I'm trying to integrate her in with Blue. Pigeon's been, you know, a little bit on my second to last nerve. But that laser pointer, I can't even tell you. Because Blue doesn't give a shit about shit like that. Like he doesn't care. Nothing moves him. But yeah. this laser pointer, the goodwill it has brought bought me with this cat, it's unbelievable. Like the, what we have going on between us, it's unbelievable with this laser pointer. It's so precious. I love, I love that about cats. I'm so 
inexperienced with cats because my whole family is allergic. Mm -hmm. So obviously Roberto is my roommate and he's a cat person and has that cat experience. So he's more taking control in the cat department. I come from a dog family and they're not the same. So I can't like translate any of that knowledge into cat knowledge. They are not the same. They are not the same. And you can equally love both of them for different reasons. Yeah. But like oh, for sure. you only know one type of pet, like it's definitely a huge adjustment. Like the way that it's foreign. Yeah. Yeah. You can't just like, they don't want to just, you know, the way that you can fuck up a dog when you're just like, and you're like giving them scratches all over, like with cats, like, no, you got a pet and you got to go with the grain of the wood. You got a pet with the, with the grain. I don't know Roberto outside of recording with you. Um, and I really don't know you outside of recording with him, but, um, I can tell he's a cat person. Right. Yes. Yeah. It's very much an energy. It's very much an energy. And we have now, this is our second apartment that we've lived in together. It's technically, it's a pet free apartment. We're not allowed to have pets. So we're just doing this brief cat sit. Yeah. He, I mean, he very much wants a cat. I could get on board if it weren't for the allergy. (laughs) And just being more of a dog person, that's kind of our main I think the different paths that we're on is that ultimately I would like to have a dog one day and he would like to have a cat. You could try a Sphinx. Yeah, I I want one really bad. I do. Or a Siamese. Um, Those are, well, Sphinxes are hypoallergenic. Yeah, I know Siamese are supposed to be at least less allergenic. Are they? Sphinx cats, Roberto is very much against the hairless cat train. Yeah, it's definitely a vibe, you know? I mean, I love it. I'm like the uglier, wrinklier, the better. Like that sounds right up my alley. Like the hairless cat on my leopard print sheets. Like it's a, it's a mood, but for him, he's like, they're greasy. Oh yeah, that is true. I mean, if you've ever watched Real Housewives of New Jersey, you know, grandma wrinkles required a bath. Yeah. Um. But yeah, no, I, I love that for you guys. So wait, because we're like sort of wrapping up in a little bit, I want to get to like, you know, get to know you a little bit better. So you went to Emerson and you and your roommate slash podcast co-host met there. Did you decide, so do you live in Boston a little bit after graduating and decide to come to LA? How did that work? Yeah. So I have been in Massachusetts most of my life. I mean, I grew up, I moved around a lot, but Boston always felt like home to me. So when I went to college there, it wasn't like a big, like foreign adjustment. So I always knew that I was going to end up going somewhere else. Um, Emerson has a campus out here that Roberto came to, to do a semester, um, which was his final semester. I did not finish at Emerson for a number of reasons. So I left school and then I was just living in Boston for a year. Roberto was out here in LA. I was like just a waitress in Boston kind of by myself, like not kind of nothing going for me like no reason to really stay there mm-hmm. all of my friends were moving out to LA I always kind of intended to end up out here anyway so it just kind of seemed like the thing to do mm-hmm. so I drove out and we moved in together and the rest is history well I'm proud of you guys how did you come up with the idea for your pod we were it was 2017 and we had just become friends and we were those people who clicked instantly. Right. My best friend at the time had just moved out of Boston. So I was like 
honestly just had this window of like shopping for like a new bestie. Like I needed somebody. Um, and I met Roberto and it was this instant connection. And we knew that we were going to be best friends for life, like pretty quickly. Um, but I think the podcast initially was just an excuse for us to hang out. Mm-hmm. It was sort of us a way, a way for us to schedule every week to be together and to watch TV shows together. The idea just came to both of us as like a, because we both love bad TV basically. Right. Um, so we did that for a few months and then eventually when we realized that we didn't need an excuse to hang out, we stopped doing the podcast. And then last year when we had been living together in LA for a while, we realized, wait, this was actually a pretty good podcast idea. We should bring it back. Yeah, it is a great idea. I do wonder like, you know, one something something being like a one season wonder or a one season show. I guess there's a lot to farm from in like the sitcom world. There's a lot of things that have like six episodes and then they just don't move past that. Mm-hmm. Like Happy Endings was sort of like a show like that. Yeah, where they had like we tried to do. Part. Yeah, we try to do a lot of variety. We've had you on for reality, and that tends to be the reality shows tend to be the ones that we like the best. But we do sometimes watch shows that we end up like really not thinking are good but i'm gonna say like do you ever like run out of things to watch i mean i guess like at some point you technically could run out but also probably not really oh no yeah no there's there's so many once you start digging for canceled tv shows because there's several every year Um, we have a very we have a very long list we definitely are leaning toward shows that were canceled earlier so they have less episodes because it's a lot of labor for us to watch like a full season of a show for one podcast episode Mm -hmm. but that is how committed we are to watching bad tv so (laughs) we haven't had trouble finding shows i mean sometimes it's been great on your show and probably should have just been one season is scream queens oh right yeah i know i know roberto has watched it yeah, we also do sometimes chat about what shows we think should have been canceled, what shows we think are going to get canceled. Yeah. It is kind of crazy to think about a show like Scream Queens or a show like Secret Life of the American Teenager that we're just on for a super inappropriate amount of time for the quality of the show. You know what's so interesting? Okay, because I thought you were about to tell me Secret Life of the American Teenager was only one season, and I was like, I oh, no, no, feel no. like I... Just being a Pretty Little Liars lover, I feel like I just knew of that show going on for so fucking long. Like, I think Secret Life had at least four, yeah, seasons. Um, well, wh- have you thought about doing something like like shit? My dad says like one of those like sitcoms that just like was supposed to be a huge hit and then never got on its feet. Yeah, absolutely. We we don't have that on our list yet, but we're always. Like, we don't have a concrete list of what we're going to do all year long. Like, we we change our mind pretty frequently about which shows we want to do. But yeah, something that was set up to be a hit that ultimately failed. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be notoriously bad or notoriously genius. It can truly be any kind of show that didn't make it, and we would consider watching it for sure. What's, like, the worst one you've watched? We watched... Um, we do a ranking of the ones, like, the top five most worthy of getting canceled, and our number one spot is still the first show that we watched, which was The Beautiful Life, colon, TBL, which was an Ashton Kutcher produced 
show about models in New York. Right. From 2009, starring Sarah Paxton and Nico Tortorella, Misha Barton. Sarah Paxton from um, the binge drinking movie that we did here. Yes. That's yes, I know the her. Sarah Paxton. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Corbin Blue is in TBL. TBL. McPherson. Yeah, that was a thing. You know what? You know what else, like, by the way, has been getting weird fan love? And I don't know if they had a second season, but that ABC show Selfie. I think they only had one season because I think we've talked about doing Selfie before. Because there's like... That's the one with Karen Gillan, right? I think so. But it's had this like sort of... Or maybe even more like notably uh, John Cho, I think, was in it from... um, Yeah. Harold and Kumar, but like that yeah. show was a, you know, supposed to be a big one. I think the the title of the show um, was the biggest strike against it. If I'm being honest, <laughs> absolutely. Well, it's supposed to be like a My Fair Lady thing. Yes, and the pilot read very well on the page. Like you totally understood what they were going for, which is like this unconscious woman who's just like moving through her life, like. You know, just like uh, very much like enchanted by social media, sort of like made unaware at this point in her life. And I think that that was it was very zeitgeisty. It was definitely 2013, 2014, like Mm -hmm. perfect thing. But I'm surprised because it's had a lot of weird fan love, like a, a weird resurgence of people being like selfie was before its time. Like everyone should revisit selfie. So that might be just a good one for you guys to do in terms of like people searching for podcasts yeah. you know that's definitely on the table we've talked about doing that one i do remember seeing the trailers and thinking like this looks kind of cringy because i think it was also stylized as hashtag selfie mm-hmm. that's why i think the title was its biggest like mm-hmm. thing against it was because it had that was yeah that was a big year for the canceled rom-com sitcom situation because that was also the same year as manhattan love story and a to z yeah, I, you know what? I actually really want... Well, Selfie was... I think... Yeah, no. No, they were the same year. I really wanted to write on A to Z. Like, Oh, really? Yeah, I really, really wanted to staff on that. And it came down between like me and two other people. And then like when you're at a certain level, it's like if the people who make more than you at a different level in the WGA scale or whatever, if they get hired, then like all of those other positions sort of dry up, right? So like... Interesting being at like the technically like producer level, it would be called in WGA. Like you sort of are in a tough spot and I don't care about money, honestly. So I've always said like, I don't care if I'm a staff writer forever. Like who cares about that? You know, especially like a second season staff writer who cares, but like, um, yeah, no, I really wanted to work on A to Z. I thought that was a really great idea for a show and I'm still bummed. It didn't go the distance. Yeah, I think I saw the pilot when it first dropped. It was produced by Rashida Jones. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It definitely had a lot of promising aspects to it. That was, I guess, a tough year for the for the romantic sitcom. It was a tough year. And, and something fun that would be maybe for you guys that might be fun is like shows like Work It that was like sort of like a Bosom Buddies update. It was about two guys that like that like went in drag as women to fit into the working world or like, re- like, yeah, the working world. That's so funny. I love how I've never heard of that. And it was like considered to be like a disaster because it was, um, 
you know, a lot of money went into it. It was a big network sitcom, you know, back then, like, especially, I think they were maybe making more sort of like random choices. But when a network got behind something, they would go all out. And so this was like this, you know, over the top idea, these guys like going in full drag just to be able to make it in the work world because they were like, you have a better chance of being hired if you're a woman. I think that was the plot. So it does just seem so tone deaf in a way that could be extremely funny. I agree. And I never saw it, but I just know it was like a nightmare show. And they had some pretty good writers. I think Pete Holmes wrote on that show. That's really kind of insane. But yeah, so let's, sorry to dial back. I want to do let you go. We're, I feel like we're on a nice track here in terms of the schedule. So I want to point out that Hannah sort of saying, to the the people in the horseback riding group slash gym, yeah, we're just gonna stay here. I think we're fine here for a little bit. She's both letting Jim know that she's not threatened by these people, but also letting these people know that they are going to be where they are for the foreseeable future. So they can get all of yeah. their ducks in a row because they're not leaving that spot. And so I thought this was smart. On her. It was so great. It was yeah. such. It was a stroke of genius. And like, of course, all of these people, when they leave her, they all give her that eye contact that when you're like a teenager, you probably don't know is not an adult looking at you like you're I would have assumed I'm in trouble the way that they looked at her. Right. But like, right. it's really them trying to give like a non non aggressive, but reassuring glance that like they they see her. They got this. So at the hotel room in Nevada, the detectives get a call from that four hikers just saw them in Idaho. So looks like we're going to Idaho. Um, The helicopters are hovering over the forest. It's August 9th, six days after a patrol car like calls in. We see this like little guy. He's like, he looks like he's 20 driving into the woods in his patrol car. And he says, um, you know, he spots Jim's car under the br- uh, the brush and he calls in saying that they've got a situation over there. Gets in his car and like zooms away. I love this actor because like I feel like I know he I know he lives in a shitty apartment, but he really likes his first year on the job. Yeah, I see that. So the moon is out that night. They have a fire set up. Jim asks Hannah how she's doing. And she says she's starving. She's shaking. She's barely alive. And he's like, you're fine. You know, you're with someone who cares about you. And she's like right on it. Like she hits him back right away in a way that I don't think I would have had the presence of mind to have done. And she's like, oh, really? This is what taking care of someone looks like to you? Like me being like starved and not comfortable at all. This is what this is what you're promising me in life. And um, this is our great life you have planned, getting lost in the woods. Like she starts to really chip away at him. And at this point he grabs a beer. Then Hannah goes to the tent and she cries herself to sleep. She's using her flannel like almost as a teddy bear. It's very like sweet how she has it all bunched up. And you can tell she's probably like going slightly more cold. So she has this thing to hug. And he gets yeah. in there and he, he pats on the bed, I guess. It looks it looks like he's gesturing to this area and you're like, oh my God, please don't let this be like when he assaults her that we have to see it, right? She's like, yeah. no, you're drunk. And he pulls out the gun and he's like, come here, come lie down. And he like pats it the way that I would if I wanted an animal to come sleep next to me. Yeah. So she lays down and he gets behind her. 
And like, it's unclear if this was a suggestion of sexual abuse or like what it was, but it definitely seems like this isn't just like an innocent spoon. But then before we can like see anything happen, he comically snores. Like it's literally like, like it's like, yeah. it's, it's cartoonish. And, you know, she spends the rest of her night sort of frozen in fear in the morning, we're on day 10 and Jim wakes up to the sound of helicopters circling them. And the FBI is using a screen that is terribly green screen to scan in on the woods. And Jernigan is like, gotcha. So he's like, you know, he's cool guy all of a sudden, Jernigan. So Jim is building, you know, a fire and he tells Hannah that they need to act natural and show them they're just some normal campers. And she waves her flannel a bit. And she's clearly signaling to the people in the helicopter that something's going on. But he only catches the tail end of it. And he's like, oh, you're signaling them. And she's like, no, I'm not. And she's able to totally play it off in that moment. And this is like, you know, again, we've really seen his mental decline take place over the last four days. Like, it's kind of crazy that this man was even operating a vehicle a few days ago. And he tells her that they need to get some more wood. They got to get this fire going. I mean, his logic is completely out the window. Let's play 118.23 to 118.50. This is McKinnon's moment he's been waiting for. This is where the camp was spotted, here. I want the hostage rescue team up here to surround the area. Make sure we're in position before anybody makes a move. There's an aircraft overhead keeping an eye on the scene, but there's a lot of wilderness here, and I don't want to lose them. Now, remember, he has a hostage with him, a 16-year-old girl. Make sure you know where she is at all times. Am I clear? Yes, yes sir. sir. All right, move out. All right, that was his big moment. So Jim is very frustrated and kicking around the campsite at this point, And he's like, why do you look so scared? She's like, because you're acting crazy and I want to go home. And he's like, listen, you don't have to be afraid with me. And she's like, we're going to die out here if we don't figure something out. We're lost and we need help. So we see the two of them in crosshairs. And right at this point, this is sort of where we picked up at the very beginning of the film when we see these men coming in, you know, in cargo pants at, to this fire to like get them in the first place. And she turns and sees this light flashing in the trees. And that's how she knows that they're close by. And she basically, what she, whatever she does at this point, she's just buying some time. So she tells him that, you know, she read in a book that if you shoot your gun in the air three times, it means SOS and someone can find us. And he's sort of like mocking her at this point. He's like, oh, is that what you wanted me to do so that cavalry will come? I know you're watching me. I know what you're thinking. We're going to be we're going to go send old Uncle Jim to jail. Oh, yeah, that's not going to happen. I'm going to walk right out of here with my girl and make a life. You hear me? And he keeps repeating over and over. And I'm going to walk out of here with my girl and make a life. So this is like, you know. As much as she is a mule, I think he also does see her as his girlfriend. It's un very unclear. Yeah, I felt like they must have toned that, like, the sexual aspect down for the movie. Just because she is a minor and they want to, like, have some respect for this victim. I don't think that's why, but okay. Like, I agree that it was toned down, but I don't think that they do that. I don't think that typically, like, respect for the victim is, like, hugely in play. 
Yeah, I mean, I agree, certainly from my experience watching Lifetime movies like that, it doesn't really make sense to me as as their MO. But it also doesn't really make sense to me how like his behavior just doesn't make sense. I know. So he just doesn't make sense. Uh, Yeah. So that's the thing is like, there's two things that they sort of dance around without dancing around it. And it becomes more and more complicated, right? Like Hannah's sort of the inability to get a read on what Hannah's character is thinking. And then also this disconnect between Jim and is this his girlfriend to him or is she a means to an end? And like, I think the dancing around this, there could have been some, there should have been some more nuance in here somewhere with like, you know, there, I mean, it really could have been cleared up with like a line. I guess there's something to be said for the fact that it is based on Hannah Anderson's firsthand account. So what we're seeing is all going to be based on what she described. And I could see her describing it differently than maybe it would have looked from an outsider looking in. But at the same time, like as much as it's based on that, they definitely didn't do Hannah favors by having this actress play it straight where she was like terrified by this man. Yeah. Because they danced around in that, in that gray area with the actress as well. So it's like kind of unclear who this film is on the side of. And also at the same time, why they're being so political. Like, because they didn't have to cater to either side of the truth. But um, she tells him that, you know, put down the gun and he tells her to get down now. So that means go into the tent, I guess. And McKinnon says it's time to move in. Jim pulls out his gun. We saw this at the beginning. He's sort of taunting the FBI. And um, at that point, he gets shot and we see him fall to the ground. The last thing he sees before he dies is Hannah. And Hannah does look concerned. I mean, I'm sure it's probably shocking, even if that person is your worst enemy in the world, to see someone that you've known your whole life fall to the ground dead, shot by the FBI after kidnapping you. And she comes to his side. And and, and I think, like, one of the reasons why people could argue, like, oh, maybe she was in on this or something, is that she didn't know that she was sort of clear until they were like the FBI was kind to her. Like, I think she was, she, it seems like based a little bit on what she said that she was surprised by the kindness that the FBI showed her. Yeah. Yeah. To me, that just seems like kind of like evidence of like some brainwashing, like some, you know, just the way that she had been made to feel so afraid while she was with him, that it would make sense that she would then also be scared of the FBI. I, oh, I agree with you. And I could also see why someone else would interpret that as maybe guilt, you know, someone who's not yeah. so clear on what happens to someone like this. So yeah. um, today I asked Hannah when she knew she was safe and she says it was when they put, put a blanket around her and told her that it was going to be all right. And then we see Hannah's dad is with his in-laws still working away at the case. And then we'll cut to a clip of Hannah on today again. 12314 to 12505. I'm going to run these over to the sheriff's station. Want any help? No, I'm good, thanks. Hey, Brett! <laughs> Miss Anderson, we found Hannah. Do you remember the hikers? Yeah. Well, what if I told you they were here? Would you like to meet them? Sure. 
Everett. Nice to meet you. We brought a hat for you from Idaho. Thank you. <laughs> Interesting. Thanks. Well, Hannah, thank you so much for trusting us with your story. I hope that this is the beginning of a lot of healing for you. Thank you. How do you feel now, kiddo? Now that I finally told the real story, it can finally be over. That jam was everything. Right? Is that original music for the Lifetime movie? You know, we'll have to look it up. Um, I feel like it is. I would assume yes. I haven't heard heard that hit elsewhere. Um, But it is a jam. And while that music was playing, we got a lot of little... We got a little montage. We got some ends tied up here. So we see Hannah's back at school and she seems to be doing well. There's a shot of her in her closet where she's like touching a white dress. And I don't, this, this sat weird with me because it felt like maybe a nod to like the idea that she thought she might marry him. Ooh, I didn't even pick up on that. That's kind of a fascinating observation though. Right. Like, cause like it didn't seem like that would have been her prom dress. Like we never like heard a, it would have meant something if they had said earlier on, like, oh, like she was supposed to go to prom, but she was kidnapped. And then we she, we would see her touching this dress and know, OK, this was supposed to be her prom dress. It did look bridal and it didn't look like it would have been her mom's yeah. wedding dress. So it was a weird sort of like thing it was that they like a, there. I felt like it was one of these like loss of innocence sort of metaphor moments with the white right. dress. But the bridal thing honestly makes more sense. Yeah, and like that's sort of like what I mean, where it's like Lifetime definitely stands up for her in a lot of ways, but they leave some they leave some doubt there for you. And then we see Detective McKinnon's wife brings the mail to the table and hands him a card, and he opens it. And it's a thank you note from Hannah. I'm going to read what the thank you note said. Um, Dear Agent McKinnon, thank you so much for all of your effort and support in getting me home. If it weren't for you, I don't know where I would be. I can't thank you enough. Love, Hannah. And she drew a heart with an arrow through it at the bottom, which is like, it's so pure. It's like literally what a high schooler would write to the detective that (laughs) saved her. That saved her. Yeah. Then we see like Hannah looking at a message board of all the things that people are writing online. And, you know, for the most part, People are, are, you know, fighting with her or fighting for her. They're saying, you know, everyone needs to leave her alone and let her live her life. Hannah went through a living nightmare. Uh, Hannah's an angel. But then there's some, you know, people saying, 
The whole thing seems shady. She could have ran away whenever she wanted. She obviously liked that gym guy. So we're seeing that, you know, there's equal measure support and people questioning her. And then we get the final title cards with what's going on in present or like, you know, present day when this film was made. It says the FBI, San Diego County Sheriff Department and United States Marshals Service investigated the aspects of the Anderson murders and subsequent kidnapping. Next one says, after countless hours analyzing testimony, witness accounts, and physical and electronic evidence, all three agencies concluded that Hannah Anderson was telling the truth about having no role in the murders of her mother and brother. Final card says, today, Hannah lives with her father in Lakeside, California, and hopes to pursue a career as a firefighter. Which is total left field for me, firefighter. Yeah, I guess she really, I guess after getting rescued herself, had a little rage right. to to give back. If but, he had been there to yeah. put out the fire of her brother and mother, maybe they would be alive today. Yeah, that's intense, actually. It is intense. You never hear a young woman, especially a millennial Gen Z young woman saying, I think I'm going to be a firefighter. Um, I wonder if it happened. I know. I was I was trying to like find out what's going on with Hannah Anderson, but I will note that one thing that's fascinating to me is that there is a very big pajama company called Hannah Anderson, but without the H, the second H. So it's H A N N A. And that is like if you if if I was Hannah Anderson, I would absolutely use whatever money I got from this whole thing. And create a pajama line named Hannah Anderson. So it was very difficult to find out updates about me. Because she is known for her pajamas. And right. That is really funny to think about. It like completely obscures. Like, I mean, it's difficult. Like if you search like the number one thing on Google's SEO is this pajama company. I I saw that too when I was trying to read up on her. But it does look like the company was founded in the 80s i wonder like i yeah i mean it's it's just it's fascinating should i buy some hannah anderson pajamas it kind of looks like it's for children (laughs) i mean i didn't look at the website so i don't know but you don't have to let that stop you but yeah it does look like oh no it looks like there's some adults with a matching footy pajama situation with the kids but yeah it does look like it's geared toward tots tots yeah you know i um I don't really get the footed pajama thing for adults. I don't even really wear pajamas. But yeah, the footed one. I mean, I get it if you're a sock sleeper, which I am in the winter. But I just feel like I would feel really trapped in a footy pajama. Well, it's like for me, it's more like the getting up to pee thing. Where I don't want to be on so true. a whole unit. To like get up and pee like when I'm right when I'm in the dark like that I don't know how to I don't know how to navigate something like that um but okay so that was the Hannah Anderson story thank you so much for coming on um I'm gonna check some IMDB reviews I do want to point out the actress who played Hannah is 5'3 which I looked up halfway through when I was like oh that makes so much sense about why yeah. she's so fucking tiny um so in terms of the review of this movie, um, there are eight user reviews and four critical reviews. Um, let me see. 
Let me find a, a neg one, someone that had some shit to say. This movie only has 5.3 stars. I thought this was better than that um, for a lot of Lifetime movies. Um, ooh, a 10 out of 10. That's interesting. Who does a 10 out of 10? Let me see. From a, a user? Yeah. User. Oh, okay. Kind of, um, this biography tells the true story of a man taking advantage of his best friend separating from his family. And when the former loses his job, he literally goes berserk and kills the friend's wife and young son and goes off with the daughter as his hostage. He thinks he can start life anew with the girl, but his haunting past of his father's threats and subsequent suicide leads police to realize that the guy is definitely suicide prone. The film is also excellent because it tells them of the media frenzy after the kidnapping is thwarted and the killer himself is killed. The media will do anything to sustain the story, even going so far that something to even going so far that to, I think he meant to say that something was going on between the two. This causes the young lady to tell what happened on television and put the vicious gossip to rest. Fine acting by all concerned in this tragic tale. I do feel like that review is a little generous about the about the nuance right, of the film. Right. There wait, hold on. There's someone who wrote did a seven out of ten review, and the only line is loved the music at the end of the movie. Can't find anywhere to buy sad face. <laughs> oh, oh damn. And then someone oh. else wrote that's so funny. Six out of ten. Good movie. Loved me, but want to know more at the song heard at the end. <laughs> Wait, <a minute. laughs> Wait, this is fucking hilarious. I guess Lifetime was really touching on uh, something that was really going to speak to people, which is this ballad, this powerful freedom ballad at the end. So we agree that whoever wrote that song has people in the mentions, right? Literally, at, like, calling their friend up, can you please write a review for me on IMDb talking about how amazing my music is and how you wish it was for sale? It has to be, <laughs> right? Yeah, I mean, it could go either way in the sense that there could be, like, some moms at home watching Lifetime who really, like, this song spoke to them. Um, I mean, it couldn't be me, but there's definitely people out there. Oh, my God. I mean, I'm just, <laughs> like, blown away. There's another, this is the two out of 10. This one is mm -mm, Wes Connors. Wes, da Wes Dash Connors did not like this. Mature looking younger teen Jessica Anley as Hannah Anderson is out on an Ohio Idaho camping trip with her significantly older uncle Scott Patterson as James Jim DiMaggio. We know something is wrong because Miss Anley is skittish and Mr. Patterson seems to be interested by his niece as a sexual companion. Looking very creepy, he waves a gun around. As if that wasn't enough, they are surrounded by the FBI. After some shooting, Amley is rescued and reunited with kind, soft-spoken father Brian McNamara as Brett Anderson. We learn that Amley was abducted by Patterson. He also beat and burned to death her mother and brother. Amley and dad return to their Lakeside, California home, but things do not go well there. Reporters swarm around Amley and question her level of participation in the abduction. They suggest the Lakeside Lolita was a willing partner for Patterson and may have even participated in the murder of her mother and brother. To set the record straight, she considers going on the Today Show to tell her story. Some fear that this will only fan the tabloid flames, but a Amley is determined to tell her story. This, quote, lifetime TV movie claims to have been, quote, 
based on a true story. This review is not meant to judge the young woman characterized. As a story, Kidnapped is not very intriguing. We know the media stupidly follow these stories for their entertainment value, but they take the quote, side of the abducted young woman, witness the lurid, tingling reporting of Natalie Holloway's disappearance by Greta Van Steusteren and Nancy Grace. Here, we are led to believe that the, quote, media, CM, is a gu- as guilty of participation, but we are not shown why. The TV flashback, quote, point of view story goes into scenes without Amley or her father. There is no suspense in scenes when Amley tries to escape or kill her abductor, since... They know the ending at the beginning. Consequently, the director, Peter Sullivan's best scenes fall or fail. Sorry, this uh, this shifts interest into the psychological, but the characters are simply not interesting at all. Kidnapped. Okay, so this is what I'm going to say. This (sighs) this review is is both cynical and 100 percent accurate. I mean, it's criticisms of the filmmaking and the movie itself are are true. Like, he's correct. I do think it kind of got off on the wrong foot from the beginning when he referred to the actress as mature looking for a teen because she's just like simply not. She's simply not. It's, you're so right. No, he comes in hard and it's like, this is how you don't win fans in the, in the, criti- uh, the critique business. But yeah, you're making yourself look bad. Like she looks like a teenager. I don't know what you're seeing. But you guys, Abby's podcast, Dearly Departed, is available wherever podcasts are found. There will be links to everything in the description of this podcast, both Abby's socials as well as the podcast. You guys, please come and check us out every week. We're here doing this. This is what we do. So enjoy Lifetime Movies with us every week. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back soon. Bye. I'm strong enough to I'm brave enough to grow The darkest days get left behind If you choose to let them go You're strong enough to face it all When you know your heart is true You are On the road I take it all head on But it's hard to face it Tough to come to grips with what goes on Still I'm brave enough to look and see what everybody says And deep inside I know they're never gonna get the best of me I'm strong enough to carry on I'm brave enough to grow Cause the darkest days get left behind If you choose to let them go
It's Mae Whitman, and I play Frankie in the new Realm podcast, The Sisters. The Sisters is about a museum curator of medical oddities who investigates the origins of a mutated skeleton with two layers of bones. Seven ribs are completely fused. And you have no idea where this came from? No. She was sent here anonymously. Mm-mm. Not she. They, maybe? Wait. I've never seen anything like this. Soon, she uncovers an extraordinary mystery that connects her present with one family's tragic past in hauntingly dangerous ways. My grandfather was a journalist back in the 60s and 70s. He specialized in strange stories. Who are they? How are they connected to the skeleton? Play the tape. You'll see. Listen to The Sisters wherever you get your podcasts. We dream about it. We both dream about it. How often? Every night.